1991, Caballero Pools and Spas has been dedicated to creating an outdoor living space that will provide endless hours of fun and entertainment for your entire family. They specialize in offering excellent service and delivering top quality craftsmanship at a reasonable price. They will transform your yard into something unique and distinctive, a customized masterpiece that reflects your individual preferences. Their experience will ensure that your new backyard is something you will be proud of for years to come. Whether it's a minor project or a large master plan, Caballero Pools and Spas will help you get there. Check them out at cabpools.com or reach them at mark at cabpools.com or call 714-309-2890. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Neon Wave. Neon Wave is an internationally local shop, a concierge to the modern nomad. They bring together carefully chosen surf, fashion, art, and snowboarding gear with a curatorial eye that's drawn to the best of the best, technicality, creativity, and sustainability. Their team is born from nature, raised by the wave, and nurtured by the culture they support. This is Neon Wave. We look forward to moving forward. Check them out at thisisneonwave.com. Earth Pack, customized eco-friendly retail and e-com packaging since 1989. In a time of increasing environmental awareness, Earth Pack is an advanced supplier of affordable recycled packaging for businesses of all sizes. EarthPack provides custom products and services and continues promoting sustainability while fulfilling the individual packaging needs of eco-friendly retailers nationwide. Check them out at earthpack.com. Friends and family, brothers and sisters, welcome to the Late Night with Chalky podcast. Our guest this week is a former 80s pro and renowned journalist, writer, editor, photographer, and filmmaker. He's got it all. Check, 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 and check. Good looking, too. This guy. For the last 30 years plus. And if you're old enough to remember print magazines, you definitely read a lot of his stories and articles in either Surfing, Surfer, or in Surfer's Journal. He's been published in the New Yorker and the New York Times and was a global editor at Huck. Yep. Dang. He has written many great books, and you can also listen to him on his podcast, Soundings, presented by the Surfer's Journal. Love it. Yep. This has been a long time in the works, and we appreciate the opportunity. Welcome the ever-talented Mr. Jamie Brissick. Yes. Thank you, guys. Yeah. You're too kind. This... Thank you. Seriously, this is an honor for us. Definitely. We definitely... I definitely had your pictures on my wall. Wow, I didn't know that. That's, I can't wait to get on tour and blow that guy out of the water is what I'm thinking. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And you did. <laughs> Thank no, you. Uh, this is our third episode here. I'm at, not counting, but yeah. It's our third episode here at Mercado. <laughs> Thank you to the guys that um, opened it up and let us use... Uh, yeah, Newport Beach, check them out. Yeah, Mercado. It's a, a bitchin' boutique that's... You can't find the stuff that's in here. Yeah, it's one of a kind, a lot of it, for sure. Yeah. But enough about Mercado. Yeah. Let's get straight into it. For sure. sure. This is an honor and a privilege. Thanks. <laughs> Where did it all begin for, for Mr. Brissick? Well, I guess... Um, yeah. Where you grew up and like... Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about this because I know we, we had spoken yesterday and I, and I, and I asked like, where do, where do you want to start? And you said, well, let's start with how you came to surfing. And I was thinking about it. I, um, 
my from from birth to about seven eight years old nine years old I think it was I lived in the Encino Hills which was the San Fernando Valley but it was up near Mulholland Drive and Mulholland kind of cuts through the spine of the Santa Monica Mountains and I started skateboarding before I started surfing but what I realized thinking about it is those Santa Monica Mountains and you can see them really well when you fly in and out of LAX if you just look to the north you yeah. see that that mountain and it's basically like the Santa Monica Mountains go along Malibu all the way up to like Camarillo, almost up to Oxnard, and then they come down along the coast and then they curve inland and then they become the Hollywood Hills yep. and they sort of end out by Griffith Park. And so much skateboarding was like birthed on the slopes of those hills and whether it was the streets people rode down or whether it was the famous schools in the Dogtown days, which was uh, Kenter and Paul Revere, they, 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 they are banking down the hill and they're like skate parks under themselves for that for that style of skateboarding back then not the street style but more the carving surf yeah. style so I started skateboarding when I was like six or seven years old on a Bain urethane um, uh, Chicago trucks Cadillac wheels and I had an older cousin my brothers and I got into skateboarding together we had an older cousin who surfed and skated and everything that he was teaching us on a skateboard was really just emulating surfing. It was that kind of carvy thing. We kick turned a little bit most of the time. The, all four wheels were on the on the ground. You, little power slides. You'd ride under a hedge and you duck. And we didn't. I, I I just was just following my cousin, but I didn't realize that we were ducking because we were supposedly getting barreled. Yeah. And it was only so. later that I started surfing that all that stuff came in. So it was like I always think of. Um, it's a silly reference, but I always think of the movie The Karate Kid where the where the guy says, go paint the fence, wax on, wax yeah, off, or whatever it is. Miyagi, exactly. Yeah. And and you're like, he's learning like all the blocks, and then yeah. all of a sudden he's like, wait, I've been doing that as I painted the fence. Yeah. And and we were doing the skateboarding stuff that was like, as soon as we jumped in the water, it was like, oh, we know, we know how to bend our knees, we know how to turn, we know our shoulders go like this. So then I started, we, we, went, we did a family trip, kind of classically like almost the Brady Bunch version of the trip. Can I, sure. can I ask you sure. like that older cousin yes. that surfed? Yes. Now was he telling you about surfing or was yes. he just like... No, he was talking all about it. He was coming back with stories. He was a few years older. I was like 10, 11 at this time. He would have been 15, 16. He'd smell a little bit of marijuana. <laughs> he Standard. had this look in his eyes and he was like, he was part of the Dogtown scene. He was in a lot of those Pictures, books, all the photos. Really? So he wow. was ripped. Oh, was he in the early crew. Totally ripped. Yeah. His name is Jeff Jones. His name is Jeff Jones. And he, so he was the one that led us into it. So we did this family trip to Hawaii. We rented uh, what now we call soft tops. Back then there was only one brand. It was Mori Doyles, which was made by Mori Boogies. It was Tom Mori. Yep. They were yellow. And we went out and we got waves. And, um, and the feeling got, you know, it was this, the feeling got kind of under my skin and my brother's skin and we were just were obsessed. And then we came back and we lived at that point in the San Fernando Valley and all we wanted to do was get down to the beach and go to Malibu. Yeah. That's how... I, Skateboarding came like second. Exactly. Like, as soon as that happened. Yes. Yeah. But, but when we could get to the beach, we would skate around and we were just... Oh, emulating. for sure. You're skating yeah. when you're not surfing 100% yes. of the time. But now, yeah. were you, yeah. like, when you were just still skateboarding and your cousin was telling you about surfing, did... Did he introduce you to the magazines? And, yes, yeah. and I think he had a subscription, or maybe he bought them from the local liquor store, but he would pass them along to us. So early on, I had, um, you know, I, I didn't even know it. One of the first posters I ever had on my wall was Jerry Lopez at Alamoana doing like the, a front side kind of carve off the top. He wasn't in the tube, which is unlike Jerry, but yeah. it was, and it was a famous poster of the era. It would have been like 77, 78. 
and it was you could buy it from Surfer Magazine. And it didn't even, as I remember when I ordered it, it didn't even identify Jerry. It's funny, I know Jerry Lopez and I mentioned this to him. It didn't even say Jerry Lopez. It just simply said Alan Wanna. And I thought that was the guy's name. And I was like, wow, what a cool Hawaiian name. <laughs> and it turns out it was Jerry. Yeah. It was almost like, if I was on the inside, it would have been like, we don't even need to introduce him. Everyone knows that's Jerry Lopez. But I yeah. thought Alan Wanna was the name of the guy. Yeah. I had it on my wall. I, you know, the classic thing where you're like sleeping with these, it's almost like a shrine to oh, all the things. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that was through you the just stare and mesmerize. Wait, Hawaii. Yeah. That's a whole another world away like these what you know yeah like, isn't, isn't it isn't it funny like how you're you're nine ten years old you're immersed in skateboarding but you haven't even been in the ocean surfing yet but you yeah. know you're already like captivated and you know that someday that's going to be your destiny yeah, yeah i know it's so interesting but you know what the thing i think about this is like if you were to start skateboarding today, you'd pro- it'd probably be a different thing because you'd be doing street, you'd learn ollie very quickly. Yeah. You'd be riding ledges, you'd be doing 50-50s, you'd be doing all these things that are not really in the language of surfing. Yeah. Whereas that 70s, early 80s period, before everything kind of went onto the street and when, when the ollie like lifted everything up, yeah. um, it was just banks. It was like everything was just emulating surfing. So they were so similar. Yeah. Well, we'd, we'd, ha- we'd have, just like famous skate parks, we'd have famous banks that we would yeah. go hunt down and freaking surf. Yeah. And, and the way skate parks were built back then, they were like yeah. for surfing. You know? Yes. They were like snake exactly. runs or like Exactly. You know, half pipe bowls, but like not like what they are or what they no. became. It yeah. was like way more into surf style. I know. It's so yeah. true. It's so funny because my mind still, I sometimes forget that how many decades have passed and I will occasionally like be driving and I'll see a drainage ditch and there will be a part of me that was like, is like, I could go there and spend the entire day there and be happy. And yeah. I'm like, wait, I stopped skateboarding 20 years ago. And I don't even know how to ride them anymore, but that is the terrain right yeah. there. But like you said, all four wheels on the ground, the way you pumped and stuff, it emulates like yeah. surfing so much, the way you have to torque and twist. And, and, yeah. and then how, how's this for a memory? When you had like a, a little bit of dirt or sand on part of the, on, on the cement, where yes. you like, Oh shit! I'm gonna fucking Perfect. slash this totally, thing. and you use it to slide. I know, yeah. I know that so. I know yeah. that so well. They call it Bertelman. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> How and funny is that? A, and there's a Larry Bertelman surfboard right oh, above so us. So awesome! Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's funny that how that Bertelman like skateboarders. We talked to um, skateboarders before. Mm-hmm. We've had pro skateboarders on, and Bertelman. I mean, that's like a word that they use. Yes, and I bet a lot of you know. Younger skateboarders don't know that it's Larry Bertelman. Yeah, you know, which is really funny. Yeah, you know, that's why they have our show, and then they learn something. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's what we're doing. We're re- revisiting the past and bringing it up to the future. No, but it's interesting because I, th- I think so much of the um, skate skate stuff and surfing as well. It's just it's it. I, I'm sure you guys can relate to this. It's like a feeling that you um, you want to almost bring to your life. You want to bring it out of the water and into everything you do every everything, day. Yeah. And kind of just that, like, like, like fluidity. You mentioned, yeah, yeah, with what you mentioned with the magazine clippings and the collages, it's like you're doodling at school. You're staring at these pictures. You're trying. You're one hundred percent just sucked in. Yeah. No, it's only I think I, I for for us, and I'm sure we share this in common. It's like it was so second nature, so much of the world that we just sort of fell into as yeah. kids, and now I'm old, far enough along in life, and I have friends who are never touched a surfboard in their life and when I think about the context I realize um, what a 
what a fascinating world culture universe that we got to be a part of growing up and how much it affects the way we look at things and the worldviews, etc. Totally. Um, So when you were, you didn't get to surf in California, your first surf was in Hawaii? Well, I started a little bit at Santa Monica State Beach because my parents would take us down there and I was the youngest of three boys and then... I have a younger sister as well, and it was like the easiest place to handle this, just these animals running all over the place was just take them down to the beach and leave them alone. And then like we'd borrow a board from my cousin, we'd go out, but Hawaii was where I really, it like got under my skin, I could like feel it in me, you know? Yeah. So then, but that was just like a week long trip, and then we came back, and I think somehow the warm water, somehow Waikiki, we were surfing Queens, we we got instruction, we got a lesson. And then, like, I learned, like, how, how to pop up. And then I sort of brought it back. And then it was all Malibu, Zuma, Santa Monica State Beach, all the local beaches in L.A. County that my parents could take us to. That was, like, where I, where it all started. Yeah. Were you a beach family before you guys got into surfing? Were you like, hey, let's, like, weekend, summer, you guys were going down? No, we went a lot. And yeah. it was a little bit of a drive because we lived up in the Encino Hills. And then we lived in Westlake Village, which is the far west end of the valley. So we were never, you know, we couldn't afford. We always wanted to. Especially when we got into surfing, we kids were like begging my parents, let's move closer to the beach. But it was like the real estate got too expensive. So we were always inland, um, which kind of made the hunger even stronger. And um, yeah, but we were a beach family. The, my parents, it was, it, was, it was easy. I think it was, you know, it's funny. There's that word free range that's used for eggs, chickens. Yeah. Um, but it's often used for like kids who grew up in the 70s. Like yeah. we, I had a free range childhood and I really, we really did like, it wasn't, sure. the word helicopter parenting was not even in existence no. then. Like parents just somehow trusted. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy when I think how oh, we were wild so those times loose. were. It was so loose back in the day and yeah. And good, you know, good and bad. You know, there's obviously what, like. What's <laughs> crazy is both parents almost in every family worked yes. at that time period, it seemed like, right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, they couldn't be helicopter parents. Yeah, like you, you, you or afford a full time nanny. Like we had, um, you know, um, a Mexican like cleaner nanny. Like she would yeah. come and watch us after school. She cleaned the house, and we she was there every day. But it was like reasonable for a middle class like yeah. family. You, you know, yeah. Yeah. there was no after school programs like really, unless there was a white. You know, like you, you know, most of the kids just. Well, I walked home at like first, second grade, like. You know, have yeah. a mind. Like, I wouldn't yeah, let we, my kids do that now. We yeah. had no <laughs> yeah. We had Herbie Fletcher. He was like talking about doing paper routes at like seven or eight. Remember yeah. that? Yeah. We we're just like, what? Seven or eight years old? Right. Like, my seven year old, you know, I mean, she's 11 now, but I couldn't, I can't picture her doing it at 11. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We need to bring something back to get these kids whipped into shape. I know. Right. So, do you remember like coming back and like getting a, a board with your brothers, a family board, shared board? Or? Yes, it started that way, and then it was like, you know, Christmas came around, it was like we could buy a second, I could get a second-hand board, so now I had my own board. So the first few boards were the were the wrong size. Um, I remember having like a 7.2 when I would have been like 4.6. <laughs> and it was a pintail, so it wasn't a long board. But when it really came together, it, it, when what made me realize I wanted to, there was like this... I think in many ways in the beginning it was just like surfing. We're just surf stoked. Yeah. And then where it became like, okay, this is the angle I want to go down was um, in 1979 there was a Sunkiss Pro at Malibu. Wow. We didn't even know. We saw everyone. And Buttons, Kaluuya Kalani won. The Town and Country team were there. Larry Bertelman was there. Dan K. Aloha was there. Randall Kim, Louis Ferreira, Vince Klein, Calvin Maeda. Uh, I think Michael Ho was there. Um, 
but we saw competition for the first time. And it was this amazing thing because we that period in like the LA surf scene, the big board brand was uh, Natural Progression, Wilkin, Blue Cheer. And there was like a real soulful kind of quaaludes were a drug going around at the time, a lot of weed smoking, and there was like this mellowness. It yeah. was like surf kind of mellow and soulful. And then suddenly we saw these like revved up dudes. I remember watching like Dane just flying down the line with such, he was just going so hard. And, and I was like, oh, that I want to surf like that. Yeah. And then also seeing contests because I think in the magazines we'd seen contests. I knew contests existed, but I never actually saw a surf yeah, contest. It's a, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's different, total different vibe from watching like a movie, you know, a cinema movie, which was back then all yeah. artsy and cruising and yes. tons of slow-mo and, you know, just the essence of it. And a contest is well, like complete opposite. You, you You're watching were, it live. You yeah. were, I think, at the crossroads. You you were at the crossroads of soul surfing and competitive surfing. Exactly. Right? No, exactly. And the competitive thing, it was like we... we we lost friends by taking up the contest and the bright colored boards and the bright wetsuits. There was this divide where it was like, yes. wait, you're supposed to wear black wetsuits and be mellow and ride like long single fin pintails yeah. and have a beaver tail and do really like smooth surfing. And suddenly we we're like, no, I want to slash all over the place. Yeah. And yeah. I don't want to do it on a bright board. So I ended up, the contest happened. We watched the whole thing. Buttons won. It was like this whole unfolding of like a whole new dimension of, of surfing. And then um, my... Friends, brothers, we bought secondhand boards from the guys because they were like going on to the next event. From the pros. Yes. And I bought a board from Randall Kim, the late Randall Kim, who was the most lovely guy, and it was a 5'9 Town and Country twin fin. Wow. Still way too long for me. Yeah, but like. But a really great board. It was bright, like, it was like a, a mustard yellow twin, and twin orange twin fin. Twin. Shaped by Glenn Minami. Nice. It has teeth. Town and Country stickers on it, CHP stickers, Hawaiian wetsuit stickers. Remember that? Yeah. Or laminates or stickers. Yeah. 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 It was lambs, not they, stickers. Yeah. Well, these they were had both. They probably had both. Yeah. But they, like, they, they did have lambs, but I think it was probably like a board that got done last minute. But it was this, there was this whole kind of romance of competitive surfing because as I remember it, like the guys had just come from Gladiators. some other event. Yeah, totally. And it was like, they'd been at some other contest. They, they were now in Malibu and then they were on to the next event. So we got to like, see the whole like touring professional thing yeah. which was so cool like it was so different because our heroes before that were like guys who lived up the street and walked down barefoot and there was that whole aesthetic that seemed so cool yeah. like the yeah. local guy and yeah. then suddenly the it was black like black wetsuits or beaver tails yeah. and like and those guys probably all ripped in their own right you know yeah. Yeah. but like yeah. now you got these guys that are in every magazine front cover center spread poster and they're like right there like yeah. bigger than life yes exactly so then it was um, you know so were you tripping on the performance level from that 7 whatever to the 5.9 absolutely yes and the 5.9 felt even though it was still way too long um, it got me going much better and I was doing I, I remember that was the board I learned to do cutbacks I learned to do like kind of fake layback type turns and then like shortly after that I duck served dives. my first contest yeah duck dive you know, that was yeah, huge yes exactly <laughs> it's less quirky but then about a few months later maybe a year later I served my first contest and I got second uh, to a guy named Solo Scott from Venice wow. was the oh, WSA wow. District 4 um, Dave Lansdowne ran the he was the director of the contest and it was this whole like cross section of, of LA that was so fun and it made all these friends and then it was like on the contest circuit. So yeah. so who out of your friends got you into the contest or was it? I think it was watching that Sunkiss Pro, and then actually I met uh, Jeff Novak who's been on your show. Yeah. He's a dear friend. 
lifelong friend. Willie Morris, the late Willie Morris, yeah. who was really great. And so both Jeff and Willie kind of um, gave... Yeah, the 411, like, hey, there's like yeah, amateur content. Exactly, like, exactly. Like, And it was not even, I mean, obviously there was no internet, so it was like, if you write to this person, they'll send you the schedule of events for the year. <laughs> yeah. And with the WSA, there was right. um, there was a contest every other month, and then there was an invitational in the other, so there was 12 events per year, but they were either like, they were local ones, and then there were national, or not national, state ones. So yeah. it was sort of like, if you did well in the district contest, you got invited to the invitational event, and that might be in Santa Cruz or San Diego or HB, yeah. and then you would travel a little bit, and then it was like this extended community. It was so much Two time WSA champ over here, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so what was turning out to be your like home break? Malibu. Okay. And then, yeah, and Malibu, and then, and then sort of <laughs> fell in with like this group of, this group of young guys who really wanted to make it, and then Willie was, Willie was like the guy leading the charge, and he was, he traveled around, but he was about to turn pro at that time. He was in the magazine. He kind of knew everyone. He knew Flame. He knew Jeff Devine. There would be like occasionally like a long camp, you know, long lens guy behind a tripod at Malibu on a good day on a good south swell shooting, and then it was like, oh, you can get in the mag, and if you get in the mag, you might get a sponsor, and if you win a contest, you might get a sponsor. So it was this weird. Now it's so mapped out. Yeah. Back then it was like, you know, you're just sort of piecing together. Yeah. Like, was there any local sponsor that you guys looked up to? Like, I mean, Willie was that guy for the most really? part. And then Alan Sarlo for yeah. sure. Um, and then traveling a little bit. So I rode McCoy surfboards, which was actually right down the block here in Costa Mesa. Yeah. Leg pouch shaped these beautiful boards. And I rode them for about a year. I got loosely, like, quote unquote, sponsored by Rip Curl. I was able to, like, trade old wetsuits in for new ones. So I guess I was technically on the team. Um, so what? Malibu, right? Yeah. Tell us about like breaking into that. Was was there a full scene, pecking order, localism? For sure. Yeah. It was interesting because I always it's think not as crowded. Valley Barn beat it. You know? <laughs> totally. No, we got all that. No, I mean it's like, and we were we. It was a thing where you know we almost had like a um, when I first started skateboarding. Cantor and Paul Revere, these like dog town spots. Yeah. My older cousin would say, if anyone asks what school you go to, tell them you go to uh, John L. Adams Elementary, which was like the local school that would have been in that area versus like, oh, I don't say I live in That's the Val yeah. and I'm here with my cousin. That's some good insight. Right so we learned there. that. I mean, that yeah. was a big thing back then. Um, but so at Malibu, it was kind of like the bottom of first point was where you would start. That was like the bunny run. And yep. then like the... the, the um, Black Diamond Run was third point, and everyone that surfed third were high performance and more advanced than. Yeah. First point had the great longboarders, but it was just a different tempo and it was more friendly, and everyone was smiling to a degree. Yeah. Third point was just like dog eat dog, and the the, the great surfers out there were Alan Sarlo, Dave White, Willie Morris, uh, Steve Dunn, and we. When I say we, I mean my brothers um, and my friends, and we were all like. 13, 14 years old, 15 years old, we started surfing what was the Kitty Bowl, and we didn't realize it, but the Kitty Bowl was almost being named after us. It was the inside break of third point, and we would hang there because we were sort of intimidated to go like duke it out with everyone on the outside, so we caught like the leftovers in there, and there was kind of a new section there that was forming from the creek, and the Kitty Bowl was kind of like named after our crew of guys that surfed there because we were the kids. Wow. Yeah. But no, everyone was pretty friendly. I, I, I um. Ian Warner, Andy Lyon, like and Andy's like still out there tearing it up. These guys were the the guys we looked up to, and they were all they were all friendly. 
Yeah. It was it was like a code. You just learn how to like find your way into it all. Yeah. I Pick mean, the more the straps. You, yeah, the more you yeah. show up, yeah. the more you start ripping. We always talk about when you rip, you kind of like let's down the guard a little bit like yeah. you know oh yeah yes. you're freaking kind of ripping dude like come you know yes you know it's definitely a barrier breaker yeah but it was so fun to kind of like fall in with that crowd because um meanwhile we went to we were in junior high in the valley and it was almost like there was this it was like almost living in this double life where there was like okay we would show up and we'd be suntanned and you know we'd like had this we'd, we'd been at surfing all weekend and then monday morning you're the, we were there and just like in class just going our heads were just elsewhere. There was yeah. such a more exciting world out there. Were you a studious like kid or not terribly? No, no, just no. I was like a C. C. There were a lot of C's on my report card. <laughs> I didn't know how to apply myself. I didn't care. I was so obsessed with surfing. Yeah, That's who was the best out of your brothers? Um. So my brother, my latest, my oldest brother passed away sadly. Kevin and my brother Stephen, who's one year older than me. We, Steven still surfs and he surfed really good. And Kevin, we got, what was interesting is like when we, the, the same time we found, 1979, the same year that the Sunkiss Pro came to Malibu and showed us competitive surfing was the same year as a family we did a trip to Europe and we saw punk rock. And then we came back and we went to see Iggy Pop play at the Stardust wow. Ballroom. And it was almost like, there was like surfing riding on one shoulder and punk rock on the other. And they weren't necessarily at odds with one another. In spirit, I think they were very aligned. There was like, surfing was still kind of countercultural then, right? Sure. It felt like defiant. Our parents weren't in support of surfing or punk rock, for that matter. So it made more appealing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, the, but the difference was, was one was like a blue sky morning time thing, and the other was like a late night and dark thing. And that punk scene had a lot of bad drugs going around. And my mm -hmm. oldest brother was really deep into punk, and then it led to drugs, and he eventually passed away from a drug overdose but so he kind of gave up surfing so went the wrong route yeah yeah what um what on the uh like you grew up in the valley was there a shop you guys kind of hung at or was there a local skate surf yeah or? well in, we lived in what is agora we lived in westlake village agora which is agora has Agora High School has given birth to, or spawned, I, I was going to say, yeah. um, Cassie Amador and the Marshall Brothers. They all went there as well. Mm. So there's been some great surfers out of that area. And at the time that we were there, there was a Aloha surf shop. And there was also Aloha Skate Town, which was a really great uh, skate park. Mm. So we skated there. We were like still skating at that yeah. time. So that was the local shop. Then there was Val Surf in the Valley. There was Kennedy. Kennedy. And then in, in Malibu, there was Natural Progression. Nice. Um, and the shop experiences were fun back then. Well, oh, that, yeah, that's like kind of like our upbringing. You know, like we would hop around from shop. I mean, there was no shortage of surf shops here in, in Huntington, yeah. but we interviewed um, owner of the surf, which was off the beaten path. Yep. You Did know, you buy the surf? No, I didn't. But I think Tom Curran wrote for them. Yeah. What's, yeah. what's his name again? Keto. Keto. Yeah, Keto. Of Keto. course. No, he was. He was like one of the first guys videoing all the time. Yeah. And he videoed Tom. Yeah. And they like broke down what he was doing on waves. Yeah. And I remember him. But you know, each shop had its own little culture and own like lineup of, of brands and, and apparel. And we would just go hop from like shop to shop to yeah. shop. Yeah. And yeah. I grew up inland. I grew up Long Beach. Okay. But you know, I love to come down to Main Street or Seal Beach Harbor and try to hang out as much as possible before, you know, 
you got vibed out. Yeah. No, it's incredible. It was, yeah. it was so, it's like the opposite of the retail experience. Yeah. <laughs> Back then. Yeah. Yeah. It's so it crazy. It was a clubhouse slash like, yeah, like, yeah, it was definitely not retail savvy. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. retail, not customer friendly. Not customer yeah, friendly. Yeah, no, it was yeah. a weird vibe. Craig Stesick is a friend of mine and he always tells the story of the concert shop in Santa Monica. And this would have been, I guess, in the 60s. And, you know, it was like surfing was really localized at the time. And the Beach Boys came out. And one of the Beach Boys, I can't remember which, was in the shop and was like pawing a surfboard and running his hands up the rails and like looking at it. And he goes over to the guy and he goes, um, I'm really interested in that board and I'd like to buy it. Um, maybe you can give me a deal. I'm a Beach Boy. And the, and the guy behind the counter looks at him and he goes, how about I just not sell it to you at all? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the vibe back then, you know. Yeah, for sure. Think, think about how many times that happened. Yeah, like it's kind of mean, but it's so fucking funny. I know. And that's it real. is. Yeah, that's like yeah. how it was, you know. That shit happened for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's. I mean, it was. I, it was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, I think it was a great way to learn about life yeah I, I know? know I know I think about that too well we talk you know most school sports or like whatever you know you're within that group age group you know that is you know the, the basketball team or flag football or soccer you know but when surfing you're you're kind of in this like giant melting pot of different ages you know where yeah. that barriers get broken down because yeah. you wouldn't asso associate if you're in third grade with fifth graders or, or sixth graders with eighth you know like those are way other yeah. other group of kids and it's funny we talk about this quite a bit is how like two or three years age difference is a world of difference when for you're sure that young. like your 15 year old cousin yeah like he was worldly. Yes, exactly. You know? Like, you know, he was exposed to all these things that we weren't. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so interesting. No, I think about that a lot, and I think um, the generation that I came up with, there weren't a lot of dads around. You know, like if I, if you go down to Trestles now, there's like some dad on the beach watching his kid. This guy. Yeah. No. Yeah. For sure. It's 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 really. Father, what are you doing like, over there? It, it, no, no, exactly. And it was so. I mean, my, uh, my, my parents were happy to see us being excited about something yeah. but they weren't like surfing was they I think I know my dad for sure would have been more pleased if it were baseball basketball or football yeah. a yeah. sport that was like college sanctioned yeah. that, that might like get you a scholarship yeah. and surfing was kind of like it was there was no NSSA yeah there was no yeah. like you know scholastic part of surfing yet yes well there was you know it's interesting because we started with the WSA and then very quickly found the NSSA and the NSSA did have a thing. If you were going to be on the national team, you had to get like a... Three O's. Yeah, so yeah. You had to hold some something. grades. And I think mm -hmm. I think back and I think about what uh, Ian Karen's Peter Town, and I think Chuck Allen was very yeah. involved. And they were... I, I look at it and I'm like, those guys actually were doing something good because they probably saw all, all these wayward kids smoking weed in vans, like this Jeff Spicoli thing. Yeah. And they're like, let's try and to they, like... And they were like the first professional like jocks. and yeah. You know, like, yeah, hey, we're taking this serious and... No, and I give them, yeah, I give them a, a lot of credit for that, for sure. However, the songs in my head were all punk rock songs, <laughs> and the idea of like, I, it was all anti-authority, and the idea of like, all these guys in matching tracksuits was like not my thing. It yeah. was like I didn't start surfing for that. If I could go join the basketball team for that shit, I want to be individualist. And, what a trip! Huh? And so there was this weird thing of like, you know, now I look at them like Ian. And, PT and Chuck Allen, they had a good vision. They were trying to do some good. But but at, as a 15-year-old kid coming up and I was 
Yeah. I, don't you know, tell me what kind of grades I need to get. Yeah. Like I surf because it's away from school, not yeah. not to like put the two together. Yeah, yeah. I, they wanted me to be on the national team. Like, why aren't you? Gonna, I just I didn't, I didn't want to put on that stickers of the other spot. I was riding for Quicksilver, and I'm like, I, I want the Quicksilver logo. Yeah, you know, I want to be like Slater and you know these other guys. I don't want to be like yeah, you know these guys. Although all my friends were on it, you know, yeah. Body Glove and OP and whatever else they had at the time. Yeah, yeah. big old on that. No tracksuits. No. Who, who was your first sponsor? Rip Curl? My first sponsor would have been Rip Curl and McCoy. Sir McCoy. Okay. Yep. And then shortly after... How, how did you get connected to those guys? Through Jeff Novak. Okay. And Jeff, um, the first surf contest I ever went in was WSA 1980 in September at Malibu. I got second to Solo Scott. I had the Town & Country board. I was getting good waves. They didn't even clear the water, so you had to like pick off scraps even in a heat with a jersey on. And Jeff and Willie were both there, and Jeff um, said... Um, you're riding a board that's way too long for you, and and Jeff had this hot. This was like the a the time of Shane Haran, and there were laser zaps, and McCoy was really into single fins. Yeah, which was I had mixed thoughts. I I think in some ways like it was good development in terms of uh, fitting with the wave. But so anyway, Jeff connected me with Greg Pouch. I ordered a McCoy. It was a five six. I think as I remember. Um, and laser it, zap? It, it was not quite a laser zap. It was a little narrower in the tail, but it was a double wing, a double flyer swallow single fin. And it was kind of like I'd been riding a twin and I was now I was riding a single. And it, the, 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 the kind of ideology of the whole thing was that it, you surfed more in the around. pocket. Yeah. And you were kind of like drawing more correct lines than the, the zappy twin fin, which was just like flying around on a little yeah. Ferrari. But then right then, right like I think by the time, like in the time between I when I ordered the single fin from Greg Pouch at McCoy and got it, the thruster came out and Ooh. Simon Anderson won like back-to-back -back events on a thruster and then everyone was getting thrusters. What was that vibe like, like hearing the thruster and hearing him win? Like, you know, was everybody like, just think of the explosion in the surf market of everybody like, can you make me one? Can you make me one? How do you make that? that was I, a, I want one. That was a paradigm shift. Holy it's so big, yeah. Well, the thing that's so interesting now is like there's so many twin fins. Like it's amazing to see this like re resurrection of the twin fin. Cool. But it's a different twin fin than what yeah. it was back then. And the problem with twin fins back then is they gave you all this speed, but they slid out. Mm. So if you were a bigger surfer, like like Simon Anderson was, or like Willie Morris, who kind of be, became my mentor, and he was a big guy. Um, if you stomped on the tail on a twin fin, you slid out. And it was before you could work. Like now, yeah. I mean, they were sliding no six just V, just, yeah. And the fins were really yeah. just splayed out, and they were set at an angle, and they did hold. So you could either have all this speed from the twin, or you could ride a single, and you could be surf more powerfully, but you, in small, crappy ways, which, with the, it was pre, like, Dream Tour, so a lot of the contests were in, like, <laughs> two-foot waves in Japan, whatever, two-foot wave, you know, Huntington, like, yeah. Huntington, bad, Catons in tiny waves. Yeah. Um, were you, were you, sorry to interrupt, but were you like bummed from going from the twin fin to the single fin? That must have been like a... No, because I was really into Shane Horan. Shane Horan was my hero completely. And Shane, um, he did surf in the pocket and he drew really different lines. And I'm thankful to Shane because Shane was such an individualist. He was so kind of advanced and he had this really like unique way of looking at everything. And I was, I was like so into Shane. So the boards were kind of um, a way of like making that same statement and following that thing. Yeah. But then I. But got, it had to have been a hard transition. Yes, it was. Single fins are fucking. Yeah. You gotta like really 
change your style. Yes, timing, you know, like, style for sure. Yeah, work harder, get speed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just different. But but I don't. I mean, I, but it's like Chandler. You got to you got to work your way up. You got to work all these different <laughs> like boards and models and stuff to really. But you know what I mean? Because the twin fin is like your skateboard. Yes. And yeah. the single fin is like your longboard. For sure. Yeah. Well, I got the first one. I got was like a fairly moderate one, and then I got a I got a full blown lasers app, which was great. And then I got there was a board around the time called a triple fang swallow. Very few people would remember it, but Greg Jeff McCoy was making them in Australia for Shane, and they were designed for small waves. And there was a really wide tail, and they had three like. Batmobile slashes in them. They weren't even like flyer, as I understand it, is a gentle wing. A proper wing is like a little bit of a cut, but these were like they were going backwards. So they, mm. if you looked at the tail, it was like a Batmobile. And they went really fast in small waves, and I was into that. But then shortly after, Willie Morris said, Jamie, you should get on the Channel Islands. It'll be the best thing you've ever done. And then I sh- he introduced me to Al America, and I started getting boards from Al. At this time, like, was Kern blowing up? Or Kern was like yeah. in his last year as an amateur at the time. In fact, mm-hmm. I think he won the world titles, I want to say at Burley Heads that year. And so suddenly I went, it was kind of a good fit. And as much as I loved Greg and all the McCoy guys, like going to Santa Barbara with the Channel Islands guys, there were all these young kids that were sponsored. Closer to home. And they worked probably better yeah. in the points. Exactly. All that. And Al was incredibly influential, not only making us the great boards, but Al was born again Christian, and he, he never at least for me, and I don't think everyone I know, he didn't impose it on us, but he had these principles and values that he placed on all the kids. Father figure. Father figure that was amazing. And it was like very earnest. It was very, it was funny because I was sponsored by Quicksilver. Danny Kwok was influential. And when I would go see Danny, it was, he was very flamboyant. It was like, get in the mag, get pictures, get, you know, make like, yeah. In a very beautiful way, it was almost like Andy Warhol. It was like, make yourself. Like, go make yourself. Just make your statement. Al's version was super humble and low-key. And it was like, just let your surfing do the talking. Just keep working on your surfing. Yeah, this this was, is such amazing story. Like, yeah. Well, you look at, like, the personalities and you expect them. That would be what would come out of yeah. DK's mouth or, yes. or Al. Totally. Yeah, like, but, yeah. but, like, to, to hear it like that's what they... Yeah. To, yeah. Well, to talk. hear it from a person that was went through, there. Yeah, went through it. You know, you're a disciple of both people. No, for sure. You know, it's like... And it was interesting because I grew up... I was in L.A. And this now... And at this time, I'm like 15, 16 years old. You know... Can um, I, can I, I, sorry to... Dude, no, you're no a, this is good. Because, yeah. you know, the whole Newport, right? Yep. And the diversity, the difference between Malibu and Newport, right? Because yep. you're writing for almost like Orange County brands. Yep. Right? For sure. And then you're, you know, but you're surfing here in Malibu, yep. which is like different worlds, right? Yes. And what was that like? Like, was it, that... It was It was really almost like being pulled into... It was like a tug of war. It was like the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other because... Yeah. So... Because, so, like, you, your crew, right? Yeah. You're making noise, right? Yeah. But Newport at that time was like the center... Yeah, Echo center Beach. of Echo, yeah, yeah, all that shit, and Absolutely. you were trying to be part of that, right? Absolutely, and I was coming down and shooting with Mike Moyer, yeah, at Surfing Fifty Six, which we called like Kodak, Kodak Reef or Kodak Sandbar, or whatever. Studio Fifty Four, Studio Fifty Four, yeah. So there was like this whole glamour thing of like get in the magazines, and it was fun because yeah. it really was, you know, when when I would and I was sponsored by Ripcord when I ordered a wetsuit, I was ordering the colors to like make myself visible, my personality yeah. show, make myself visible. Meanwhile, Al was, he never put colors on boards. Yeah. 
the, it was the Santa Barbara. It's funny because, and Tom Curran had this as well. It was very much like, be humble, be quiet, don't, don't, don't be loud, but tear it up in the water. And, yeah. But keep integrity in the way you, the lines you draw. Yeah. So there was like, Santa Barbara was that. Al was, I'd go get board shaped by Al. He'd be listening to like Christian radio while he's shaping. He'd be saying things about being low key. He'd be giving me like life advice in many ways. He didn't even know he was doing it, but he was really good, like yeah. father figure. Danny Danny Kwok down Quicksilver in Newport Beach, going get in the mag, meet, hang out with Flame, go shoot photos, yeah. connect yeah. with Robert Beck, all the photographers at the time. And then coming from Malibu, it was like there was a competitive side, and then there was also because it's L.A. There was the allure of like parties in the Hollywood Hills. And by this time, I'm 15, 16 years old. I'm hit puberty. I like girls. And, there, and then there was, you know, friends of mine started selling cocaine. And there were a lot of drugs and there was a lot of cocaine. This was like the era of Wall Street, that yeah. movie. Gordon Gekko, Greed is Good. Yeah. And so I just was like trying to find myself. And I started going to Hawaii at this point. And then all my friends in Hawaii were like Brock Little, Chad Chester, Kaipo Guerrero, um, who's now prevalent in the WSL. Yeah. They were all really low-key family values. Started family, you know, the, the I would go to like three generations of a like backyard barbecue. No one was talking themselves up. And it was like, be low key, don't brag, paddle out. And then I'd go back to LA and it'd be like, brag as much as you can. And I'd go down to Danny Quack and he's like, you gotta, don't be shy, yeah. like sell yourself. And so it was yeah. really like torn between all this stuff. Because you, you see the mindset from like Al's point of view, like, hey, let your surfing do the talking because that helps his board. Sales in in yeah. in in alignment with what he's doing as his art, yeah. you know, and selling boards. Danny wants to sell board shorts and t-shirts sure. and, and be flamboyant, you know. Like so, there's there's definitely like you you look at the brands and that's where they're coming from, but yes. it speaks loudly in their personality. Yeah, you're trying to make a name for yourself, right? Yeah, and and really, have you been thinking about turning pro or? By this time I was, yeah. and Willie was really helpful. Jeff Novak was really helpful, and they were they were showing. It was basically like. Try to get win, get in the U.S. Championships or the West Coast Championships or the NSSA Nationals, and if you can make the finals or better yet win, those are like the things that are going to get Quicksilver to sign you on. And I remember I won, um, I won three West Coast titles, and I remember I did like three in a row, I think. And and about halfway through, Danny Kwok was like, "If you can win another West Coast Championship, Wolf, we'll, we'll buy you a plane ticket to Australia." You wow. go for the pro tour. So the first event, so, so, so then I like achieved these things. And so the first event I went to was um, the Australian leg of the 19, what was the 1986 world tour. Um, and the event weirdly like went into the following year. The, the tour was really lopsided then. Now, they didn't end in Hawaii, which was maybe a mistake. They ended in Australia. And they also ended in, the, in like Easter time. Mm. So I went over for um, the studies of Pearly Heads, the uh, bow repairs event at Cronola, the Bell's Beach, Rip Curl Bell's Beach, and then the last event was the Coke, which is at Manly at that time, not in Arabian. So there were those four events. And I never made it through the trials of any of them. I didn't do very well at all. Um, but I, it made me realize I wanted to be a pro. And then so that year I joined the tour. Damn, crazy! Yeah. Like, I mean, how how old were you when you? First I was started? nineteen. Nineteen. So yeah. out of school, you know, yeah. were you working? Did you have any jobs? Like, yeah, I, going I, I was a, a pizza delivery boy on when I would between legs of the event. Extra I, anchovy over here? No, it was incredible. <laughs> I actually, I so I worked. For, it's called Johnny's Pizza, which was on PCH in Malibu. So I was slinging pies to the rich and famous, yeah. and I had like 
you know, Killer tips. It was you no know, amazing tips. <laughs> I remember once knocking on the door to this condominium, and I could hear like you know girls giggling in the background, and Charlie Sheen. It was like the ticket was for Charlie, and it's Charlie Sheen, and he's like sniffling, and he's like, and 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 I hear a thirteen dollar pie, and I hear like girls laughing in the background. Definitely, they were having a good time, and he handed me a fifty, and I like reached into my pocket, and there's a thirteen dollar pizza. He gave me a fifty dollar bill, and I'm reaching. He's like, change, kid. No, his the exact words I remember. He's like, just considered a really good night. (laughs) Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Well, you, you. He's like living. Yeah. You lived next to some celebrities when you were young, right? Absolutely. That was like such a part of my upbringing. Yeah. 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 It was always kind of an odd thing. I. It's. It's funny because coming from surfing and skateboarding, it was less in awe of that than suspicious of it. It was sort yeah. of like, it was like they were guilty until proven innocent if they were famous people. Which I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. I'm still trying to figure that one yeah. out. Yeah. But I kind of had that like that was bred into me as a young man, and I think because. It was almost arrogant. It was almost like we're surfer skaters. We're cooler than yeah. celebrity, you know. Yeah. Uh, like these, like Hollywood people. Like that's just like bubblegum. Like yeah. we're deeper than that, or because we go in the ocean every day. Or yeah, something. you're core. You're hardcore. Why? Well, I, yeah. I think it's yeah. funny though, because there's like you, Strider, yeah, um, Buzzy Kerbox, like yep. Hollywood fashion. They all they all kind of gravitated towards surfers. Yes. You know, like yep. they wanted a piece of that like heritage and culture. Yeah. You know? No, it's true. It's funny. Bad boy in a way, but like not, you know. Surfers are not all tatted people. up, they're tan, they're ripped, they're good, you know, like I yeah. think there's, there's definitely an odd appeal to like that surfer aura. So um, yeah. going back to when you were riding for Quicksilver and, and riding, because it's like, McCoys, almost every fucking McCoy had airspray on it. Yes, they were right? incredibly beautiful. Yeah, beautiful airsprays. Yeah, and rip curl, you know, lime green, bright oh. yellow, pink, whatever. Yeah, like you know, it, it, I like to talk about that because that was so the changing of the guard. Yeah, from from like you know your longboard Malibu toes on the nose guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, beaver tail. Yeah, fucking. Birdwells to you know what we have in here the checkerboard and polka dot and all that right like that was becoming the fashion and you were like at the forefront of that like you yes like it's 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 funny to hear like and and remember seeing the magazines turn to that right yeah and like you said Studio Fifty Four like what was it like getting your first shot in the mag. Like yeah. which which was it? What do you remember the, the first, first photo I had the performers? Bag. I think it was a little performers thing, yeah. <laughs> and it was a backhand sna- slash at Zuma, and Robert Beck took the picture, and it was for um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. First shot in the bag. <laughs> yeah, that was my first oh, yeah. shot. We'll post we'll post that for sure. And then shortly after that, there was a Mike Moyer picture. But yeah, that was the first one ever. Dang. Yeah, mine was similar. Lower okay. left at late afternoon. Nice. Copy of blowing out. Where was this? Do you remember? It was at Zuma, uh, like Drainpipe, which is okay. the south end of the beach. Yeah. But no, you know what's interesting because I give the magazines a lot of credit, and what's interesting is the paper was like a different. It was a cheaper paper quality. Yeah. But they were really trying to nurture up and coming guys. Yeah. And they did all the amateur results, and there was an honor to get your. Mag, oh, your name in the mag. That was everything. Yeah, make final, get the name in the mag, or the, yeah. you know, like the. 
And then you'd carefully cut it out, and then you'd like put a ruler and take a red pen and underline your name, and you put it in your portfolio. Yeah. yeah. And you'd use that to get sponsors. Yeah. But no, I mean, I give them credit because I don't know. Um, they were like giving giving props or attention to us yeah. younger guys on the rise, where they maybe really didn't have to. You yeah. know, it was, just, it was a nice thing. Well, that that was really cool having the performers, but then also the hot. 100. Yes, that Remember was a big that? deal. I, I never got into that. I think Jeff Novak was in that. I was kind of like on the outskirts. I was a little young and a little new to the scene, but I remember when going to the surf contest and everyone was talking about surfers doing this thing called the Hot 100. Are you in it? No, I'm not in it. God, I want to be in it. Yeah. And that was how it went. And um, I think Jarvis was in it. I remember seeing yeah. Jarvis yeah. in it. I remember seeing maybe Quack in it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, those were those were fun times. Yeah, how funny is it that um, you had to put together portfolios? I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I was just but he was a, a a photo album, right? right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. With the with the, with the, the clear cellophane, whatever. Yes. And then it had a sticky back or sticky yeah. stickiness to it. And then yeah. you put your photos. Yeah. And you clipped out the results at the back of the magazine. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, there was uh, years where I highlighted all the QS events I, that I was doing. You know, like this is where I went this year. You know, like results next to them and stuff. Yeah. Like it was this yeah. cheese ball, but it was like it's what you had. So, nineteen, you turned pro. Yeah. Okay. And and how did you do it? And were you starting to get paid? No, you know, so Quicksilver said they would buy me a round-trip plane ticket to Australia, and then everything else I had to fend for myself. So I was like, I was I was doing the pizza delivery job. I was working as a busboy at Alice's Restaurant on the Malibu Pier, which was torture, because I'd be, like, busting tables and looking straight out to the point and Oof. seeing waves. But I cobbled together some money and went to Australia. But I turned, I actually turned event, I turned pro at an event before that at Oceanside, and it was the Stubbies in 1985, which Brad Gerlach won. And it was kind of a great thing because I lost first round of the trials. Like I, it was like my debut. I remember being so nervous and just I didn't even feel like myself riding the waves mm. because it was like I just turned pro and the, I felt all this uh, pressure. So I lost first round. But then I watched Brad, who was my peer, who we came up through all the events, surfed in the finals of the NSSA Nationals at Huntington Pier in 1982 together. Yes. And he won the event. And it was almost like, it was like a Davy and Goliath moment of like, wow, this like... I, I, Brad and I still talk about it. like he, he kind of like it was him not me but he made it seem possible it was yeah. like he it was like wow have confidence keep telling yourself the story that you're good enough because Brad just did it and I probably beaten Brad in the event at, at that point yeah. like Brad like you know he went on to he soared above me but we at that time we were like neck and neck coming up the ranks yeah, and that was so, our sparring partner in a way yeah exactly yeah. exactly and it's like wow okay if Brad can win an event it's possible so there was that. But, you know, I think about that whole time, and it was, um, that was the thing you did. You really, like, it, it, it's so different to the way I live my life now because it was almost like, uh, I think of, like, having a, I mean, a giant ego could be useful in some places of life, but it can yeah. also be uh, a terrible thing. <laughs> but when you're a young guy, whether a young pro athlete, yeah. whether it's a boxer, whether it's a tennis player, I think you just filling yourself with this with this narrative of like I can I can beat them all I can beat them all and yeah. you just it's like a Rocky Balboa inner inner voice that you try to cultivate and keep the self-doubt out of it because it serves it in that in a lot of areas of life that doesn't serve you at all yeah marriages I don't think it'll serve you but if you're a competitive athlete 
to tell yourself that you're the baddest and the best, yeah. it's what you do, yeah. you know? Yeah, and having a, you know, obviously a supporting cast that puts it in your, your ear, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. We've seen it, right, throughout history of guys with lesser talent Yes. that fucking win events. Yeah. You know, they win boxing matches. They so win confident and just... Because of that, that inner, yeah. inner belief, and it's blind faith in themselves that go, hey... Fuck you. Yeah. I'm going to beat you. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and it might be coming from a, a, a point of view from the athlete that like, you know, I want to get in somebody's head. You might, you know, coming from where your point of view is, is like, yeah, maybe that yeah. person you're competing against has the better talent or more accolades or better, you know, results. But like, you know, you can maybe throw them off their game by yeah. throwing out some freaking, yeah. you it's, know, some yes. talk. It's gnarly sure. to see that happen too, because you're like, holy shit, like Tom Curran, right? Yep. He had such a, a nonchalant way of winning all the time, yeah. right? And then you had somebody like Sonny Garcia, yes, who is got the talent to beat anybody, but he had that fucking you Don't know, for anger, for like just has yeah, just. anger and like determination that he can beat anybody at any time. Yeah, um, no, so true. I remember I was in Australia about ten years ago, and I was interviewing Robert Bartholomew for something I was writing and I had been reading uh, a book about the rumble in the jungle called The Fight and mm. um, and I we started talking about Muhammad Ali yeah. and, and and I said you know I'm, I was too young but it seems to me like any athlete in that period would have been inspired by Muhammad Ali yeah. he's like oh I absolutely was like yeah. Bugs Muhammad like I, like I was there was that one famous picture of him. He's wearing like the Everlast robes, yeah. and I think he had boxing gloves on, or he was actually like doing this. Yeah. But it was this thing of like that, and I think for our generation, and certainly for Sonny Garcia, it was Mike Tyson, right. and it was like boxing was kind of good because it had that theater, it had the um, there was like the trash talking and stuff, and and you it was you know the leading up to a fight, it was like good for business for the guys to kind of be jousting a little right. bit verbally before they get in the ring. So yeah, it's an interesting thing. That yeah. was fun. I love that that you brought that up. The, the I see that a lot now. Yeah, Muhammad yeah. Ali and and George Foreman. Yes, because George Foreman was supposed to win that fight. Yes, exactly. And and the way I watched that documentary, uh -huh. right? And then the the Africans got behind Muhammad Ali, and they were saying Ali Bumbaye. That uh -huh. was like the chant. Right. And that I mean that all that happened, and it fucking gave. Muhammad Ali, yeah. the uh, edge, the edge, yeah. Which, yeah, that, that was such a fascinating. <laughs> I mean, fight. outside of his obviously his unbelievable best of all time skill set, you know, like his his showmanship, you know, it could have been it could have been anybody, yeah, at that particular time. Oh, for George sure. Foreman was, was like unbeatable, dude. yes, and George Foreman should have beat him, yeah. But Muhammad Ali, for whatever reason, outsmarted, outfoxed, yes. outboxed. Yeah, him at that time. No, there's a great. It's book. like it's like me and him when I when we play ping pong. He's better than me, uh -huh, but I can yeah. beat him. Uh huh. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if he irritates me enough and gets in my head, and I'm just like, <laughs> hey, whatever it takes. Sometimes, bro. Yeah. Yeah. No, surf competition's interesting that way. Yeah. It's interesting right now, and I won't I won't digress too far because I know we're kind of going through the time. But for sure, we have. Um, I think about this huge controversy around the recent contest at the, at the surf ranch. Yeah. And in many ways, like the whole idea of the surf ranch for a competition was to get rid of the, like surfing has always been so subjective and 
no two waves are the same and it's really hard to judge and it's based on these like this criterion that's kind of abstract yeah finally we have like a car a wave that's a carbon copy of one another to an extent i yeah. mean you could argue that but it's for the most part it's the same wave every time yeah and one of the biggest controversies in judging that i've seen in a decade is over something that happened at the surf ranch that's kind of ironic in right way, you know it's super yeah you yeah i you know again it that wave makes without getting you know again we could talk an hour on that but um, just it it you know it highlights any sort of error yes. any sort of like yeah. it's it's board or timing I mean it's so finicky and that wave is so hard to surf right? it's crazy because we all kind of asked for something like this right an yeah. even playing field yeah. and now that we have it we kind of don't really want it yeah. Right? Right? I know. And, and then and then when it's like so I don't understand it. It's like so there. Yeah. And and it's so fair and everybody watches the same thing. Yeah. Yep. How does how does it still wrong? I I, yeah. I think <laughs> they you know, they have a three minute window between waves to like throw down that score. Yeah. And I think that's what kind of maybe when it comes down to really picking apart two athletes in two different waves and then you got that you know that three minute you know before you have to throw the results so yeah. the next guy knows I think that's kind of a okay so let's not talk about that I know let's but talk that's about Jamie Brissick for sure so first trip Australia yep you know you, you, you didn't do well but didn't that was before well. you turned pro no I turned no. pro it was my first so my first event yeah. was the stubbies lost the first round went to Australia surfed the four events advanced through a couple rounds of trials but I never made what was the main event and back then the events that were like anyone that 16 was 16 rounds yes <laughs> there were so many rounds but I knew I wanted to be a pro server so I came home s delivered a lot of pizzas put away all my money and then went to on my first proper year which was the uh, 86 87 tour yes if I have that right yeah and I did do great and I ran out of money and I couldn't afford to do a bunch of legs and so I finished at the time you wanted to finish in the top 30 and then the next year, I was like determined to get on all of it and make the top 30 so I could be seated. Um, and I started off really well. And then sadly, my brother died right like right early in the season. Oof. And that that changed everything. Um, and so I carried on. So my like my entire five years of being a pro surfer was almost like tucking away this thing, you know, and I did. It wasn't until mm -hmm. I stopped. And this is sort of leaping ahead. But. All my years on tour, I was like, I had this big wound inside of me that I, that because I was a pro athlete and because I was like looking up to people like John McEnroe and Yvonne Lendl in the tennis world or whatever, Tom Curran, Tom right. Carroll in the surf world, Martin Potter, my heroes, um, it was kind of like not, not addressing this thing inside of me that uh, was a big sadness wound. of your yeah. brother passing. Yeah, the that. grieving. It was like, I just sort of tucked it away and just like carried on. Um, so yeah, so my so that like first full year on tour that happened and and then I had I don't know a medium mediocre run in my five years. I mean I got to ride a lot of great waves. I got to be peers and friends with all my surf heroes. Yeah, they were still on my wall at home in my bedroom wall. There was like Tom Kern was like hanging above my bed and he was like a guy I now got to like surf with and know and. There was almost, you know, I would say like we all respected one another. Like I yeah. kind of made it. Win or lose, you got that com camaraderie, like yeah. bonding, you know. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, like you're part of a something bigger yes. than you. Yeah. And I, I think that 
tour, even though you guys weren't making the money that some of those, you know, later on, you still had as much fun, if not more. No, for sure. That's the thing I think about. And it may be me just rationalizing, but I think about sort of what the pro surfers of today have is like if the the degree, the level, the, the 43 in the world that I was most of the years on tour, if I were that now, like I might have made, there might have been enough money that would have been in making the top 44 or whatever. Um, it would have been enough money to maybe set myself up a little. It was all hand to mouth. Like unless yeah. you were at the very, very top, it was all hand to mouth. You were just getting by. You never tucked anything away. But the flip side of it is like we had so much fun. We weren't kind of micromanaged by people. And uh, and there was a sense of like let's enjoy while we can because it's, it's like we, we've got this like endless summer ticket and it's going to end soon. But while we're on it, let's keep it going and have fun. And yeah. so – Surfers were really mischievous, you know. Dude, yeah. you guys, like, I, I could contest to that. We, we watched, yeah. uh, you know, Sarge's and fucking Sarge's yes. scrapbook. Yeah, 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 sure. And and seeing, you know, behind the scenes, there was. I have a photo bomb. of you, Gur, and Novak. Yes, I know that picture. Yeah, you post. Sunny Miller. You post, yeah, I did. Yeah, you posted yet. it a while back, and I screenshot it. I'm like, fuck, man, like that was the era right there. Yeah. You know, I think you were partying in Japan or something We were like that. in Japan, and Sonny Miller, rest his soul, I love Sonny, he was there, he, he was living in North County, San Diego, and I think some of the people he was hanging out with were doing throwing disco nights. <laughs> so before he went, and Sonny was smart, because he was making films, and he was photographing a lot, and he loved all of us pro surfers, like he was, we were all family. Yeah. And so before he went over, he went to like one of the thrift stores or Salvation Armies and just bought the most ridiculous clothes he could and stuffed it all into a, into a suitcase and brought it over. And once we got into the round where people had gotten knocked out of the event, he went, let's all go and dress up in this cl- stuff and have a raging night in Tokyo. So that's what that photo was from. So good. So fun. I mean, yeah. and that's, those are the best. Yeah. yeah, best times for yeah, sure. Yeah, I know it was really, really fun. You know, and and you're you know you're getting to you know travel the world and see all these cool cultures all over the place. Yes, and like Lyndon said, yeah, winning and, and losing is part of you know part of the deal. But I mean, being exposed to all that, and yeah. traveling and yeah, with I mean, because that fun, fun. You guys fun. got to yeah. do you know you were VIPs everywhere you went. Celebrities, yeah. You know, like yeah. you got to hang with the coolest people. People yeah. wanted to show you their their town and show you a good time and like yeah no that was the really nice part and you know it's so funny because we didn't have a lot of money and we were always when I say we most of us I mean Tom Kern Tom Carroll Potts they were doing okay but yeah. like most of the most anyone from like ranked 20th in the world below were like having to watch their money yeah and we were all young enough and enough of a kind of extended family and of course like competition was serious but at the same time we were all we all looked after one another and the cool thing was like most of the places not most but a good portion of the places I went rather than stay in a hotel like someone that I met on tour would let me crash at their house mm-hmm. and they were we were young enough we were still living at home yeah so I'd meet their older brothers or sisters or whatever their parents I'd be having breakfast with, I'd be, you know, I remember being in like South Africa with, there was this guy named Justin Strong. Jeff Novak was good friends with him as well. We'd stay with Justin. His family would put up like about half a dozen of us in their various bedrooms in this beautiful home in Cape Town. We'd eat meals with them. We'd eat at the local restaurants. Their friends would come over and I'd get like a little window into like what it would be like if you grew up in Cape Town. And then similarly, you know, in Hawaii, I'd crash at the Brock and Clark Little lived up Pupakea Heights. I'd crash on their floor. And so it was a real immersion, you know, and I think sometimes 
looking at the Pro Tour now, there's so much money that it's kind of like a little ivory tower and you've got your people around you and, and there's a lot at stake, obviously. There's yeah. big bucks involved. So you're not... Cultivating that, like, yeah, culture of... Yeah, yeah you're not confused. doing the when in Rome yeah. thing. We were doing the when in Rome thing. It was like wherever we went, we were throwing ourselves into it. We, we weren't, there were no dietary restrictions, so you yeah. ate whatever everyone was eating. Yeah. So you were, like, tasting all the exotic foods when you were in Japan uh, or whatever. And it was I great. remember it all clearly, like, yeah, first trip to Australia was with our high school, you know, and uh -huh. it was like we stayed up in families all through and first few years of doing the QS, it was the same thing, like, okay, fit four guys in a car, four board bags, like we're all sharing like a, you know, and then as we start making money, it's like, you know what, I'm just going to go by myself or with one other, you know, like yeah. you, not because you're, separate check, you, you know, just because <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. It, it, it's, you know, you, you have the means and then, you know, you just want to be able to like spread your wings a little bit and do your own thing, you know, yeah. but Always fun in different ways. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's so many stories that we, like, you living at that time and hanging out with all these crazy people. Like, you know, you mentioned Clark Little and Brock Little. Like, yeah. How fun you must have had hanging with those guys. Yeah. You know, surfing, you know, them welcoming you to the family. And if you're with them, you're not getting in trouble. You're, you know, you're going to surf wherever, being, yeah. wherever they surf, you get to surf. Yeah, and you're sure. accepted. You know, no, like no. that's that was so great. That, that's not an experience that most people have. <laughs> no, and I realize that now, and I real and I realize the thing that I kind of like the the realization I had after I stopped doing it, and I got a little a few years of like looking back is, you know, I was always trying to succeed competitively and I was always focused on the contest and trying to keep the blinders on and focus and training and getting better boards and keeping my fitness and stretching and doing yoga and all this stuff but when I stepped away I realized like the thing that I really got was just the travel like the yeah. travel was the thing that was the most important part even yeah. though I didn't even know I was doing that but it was just like okay by by virtue of just doing it for five years it was going so fast that I wasn't stopping to go wow how amazingly cool that I'm in Florida this week Rio de Janeiro the next yeah. week, you know, Cape Town the next week, Durban the next week, uh, Cornwall, England, three events in France, yeah. Spain, Portugal, back to Brazil, Australia for four events, West Coast, East Coast. Like, it was amazing how many... Yeah. There, at that time, um, Jay, your, tur your, your tour might have had few, might have been more dream tourish, but when we were on, it oh, was yeah. like, there were like 29 yeah. events in a year. Well, the QS yeah. would have been that. But yeah. it was, I remember there, I looking at the schedule, there was 29 events. That's like, so many events and you didn't have time there was no time to really process or absorb and it was only when I like re retired from the tour I was living in Sydney at the time Australia um, I sort of like it all started to seep in I was like wow the experience is I didn't even remember what whether I made it at the time all I was focusing on how I do in the event and yeah. everything hinged upon like do you I was trying to keep my sponsors yeah once I stepped away and all that pressure was off I was like less concerned about my contest results more about god i just went around the world for five years and i have friends everywhere you yeah know? and you didn't really get to experience that place because you're only there a week and it was all competitive mostly and yeah. then you like left and you're like man next time you come back you're like i want to spend more time you know checking but out they more. definitely yeah. raged against the machine oh definitely and, and yeah you know did yeah. more than what the, the tour guys do now. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I would be like, I want to come back to this spot without 200 of the best surfers in the world. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. how do I get back here exactly. without all these people? Yeah. Although it was those those events and fun, like, you're a rock star. Like, yeah. you know, you mentioned earlier about, like, the Hollywood and celebrities and, like, the who's who, and, you know, they're like, 
they go to the same club or the same spot all the time, and here you are, like jet setting all over the world on pretty much no dollars, yeah, and probably having a bigger, better time, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, partying. So, not to transition too soon, but how did you get into journalism? So, all I really wanted to do was be a great pro surfer, and I think. Um, my dad was a, my dad was a writer and also a um, publisher's representative, which which basically he sold textbooks to college professors and heads of department in all the schools around Los Angeles. So the so I had a, like an academic household. My my dad's dinner guests were heads of departments at CSUN, uh, you know UCLA, USC, etc. So there was always that, and there was you know books everywhere, um, and my dad was always impressing upon me the important his thing was like make sure you're feeding your mind and I think and I and I would be like yeah 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 right dad as you do right yeah but his thing was like your your athleticism is not going to stay with you forever he had the bigger vision for me it was like I don't even care I don't even yeah. know I don't even know if I'll live past 30 but like I don't even care if I do but all I want to do is win this company and his he saw which is what I see now which is like those competitive years it's just a little window of your life and then you like what are you going to do from there so he was always telling me, he would give me kind of custom tailored books, like he'd give me a book, a novel set in France when I went to do the three weeks of three events in France. That's and, cool. And so he was always kind of, and he would always have a map out and he'd be going, you're going here, you should go to this place, you should, there's a great you know, museum you should see. So he's always trying, like impressing and, 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 and stressing the importance of, of being curious. Yeah. And so I, uh, all I wanted to do was be a pro surfer, but I did read, and I did have a thing where... Journal? I did, exactly. Yeah. I had spiral notebooks. I'm sure that's what your dad said. Hey, make sure you journal. And no, remember. he did. Yeah. He did. It was like, keep notes on what you're doing. And you could relate to this, Jay. It's like, you do that thing. I mean, I remember, I was a young guy, and I was used to, and I had brothers, and it was always like, there was always a lot of voices around, but then suddenly I'd get on a plane, and I'd go fly LAX to JFK, have like a stop over there, JFK to Heathrow, huge stop over there, Heathrow to Johannesburg, Johannesburg to Cape Town, I'd be in the air traveling for 40 hours, alone. And so during that time, I would have a book, and I would just keep reading, and I didn't even know that I was really taking in stuff, but I had that. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then I and then I had notebooks and I was started writing. So anyway, long story short, I was living in Sydney. I had a girlfriend in Sydney. I was based there the last two years I was on tour. Um, 1991, there was a recession. Kelly Slater came to the fore. Quicksilver signed him for the most lucrative contract. And there were a number of us who sort of got cut in that in that period. And I was one of them. So I went back to Australia. And uh, my friend Andrew Kidman was the editor of Waves magazine, and, and Trax was in the same building. And I ran into him in the surf one day, and he's like, hey, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm off the tour. I'm, I'm done competing. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And he's like, oh. And I, and I go, you know, I'd love to write some stories for the mag. I've always been interested in writing. And I really, I was almost just trying to hustle. And, and he's like, oh, well, I actually need an associate editor. Do you think you'd be interested in working at the surf magazine? I was like, absolutely, I would. So within a, a within a few days, I had Without, a job. like, submitting any writings? Not like, really. just kind of who you are? It was, on... Yeah, I kind of backdoored my way in. Yeah. I was lucky, to be honest. I, I was going... I'm a son of a, a prominent uh, uh, English and literature journalist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there, well, there was that. No, and the, you were a great surfer. That was it. That's it. <laughs> I was in the mag. It was kind it's of like... that fucking surfer. No, that was it. I was, yeah. I was like... Helps I, when you rip. Yeah. yeah. I was I was getting my picture in that mag, and then it was sort of like I think it was probably like I had street cred based on my surf, 
but I didn't have the stuff that you would, I would have gotten from going to college. Yeah, yeah. I was so as soon as I got in there, I was like making up for lost time, and I was still surfing a lot. But I, I just like stepped into this role of being a writer in a very cliched, obvious way. I, I was like, it was I was trying way too hard. But what I did do is uh, read a whole lot. I lived, in, I lived in the northern beaches of Sydney. I had a car, but I was my head was filled with so much of the stuff I was reading that I used to hitchhike every day just just for the sake of like jumping in a car with some stranger and talking. Wow! About it. it was kind of like I was really trying to just like shed off all the pro tour mentality that I had had. Yeah. Not that I wasn't proud of it or happy about it, but I just realized. I mean, it was really like I described. Um, I was talking to a friend once about like when I stepped off the pro tour. Even though I got to go around the world, once I stopped identifying as a professional surfer it was like the blinders came off and I was like oh my gosh there's so much stuff that I didn't know I was so curious about and it was almost like I was making up for lost time it's almost pressure, like pressure release pressure release yeah or maybe someone who goes away to prison for five years even though I was going around the world but as a pro surfer it was like I stepped out and I was like oh man there's so much going on yeah. but you were like I mean you were Serious? You had like Derek Hine as like a coach, or yeah. And Derek, like you, like you were like, yeah. This is I'm I'm in it. Yes, and Derek was hugely influential, and Derek and I were really good friends. He was coaching the Rip Curl team, and meanwhile, he was writing all of his pieces, and he wrote everything. He wrote those top thirty assessments. He wrote contest reports, and then he wrote a lot of profiles. And Derek read a lot, and Derek was like always traveling with a bunch of books. Yeah, and so is it, isn't he the one that did the Future World Champion? Yes. Negative. Yes. Or yes. No. Or whatever. Yeah. Yes. That was fucking. I know. Controversial, yeah. but also so. I mean, he was spot a, on. No, no, no one did that at that time. Yes. Yeah, student of the game and the sport, and just it, again, he speak his mind. And yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, I was when you were talking about the blinders coming off, and and like you know, you're you're getting off tour. Were you? scared of like where you were going to land totally yeah i mean i started working in a surf shop and to be totally honest it was it broke my heart and i think the thing this is going back to that thing of like when you're a pro athlete i think you're just you're telling yourself you're a badass you're building your ego you're full of self-importance yeah it's kind of like don't you know who i am you yeah. know that's like the that's how you are and she's so, still that way <laughs> so, <laughs> so so when i went so when i went when i stepped off the tour I needed money immediately because I had, had nothing saved and I started working in a local surf shop and I was behind the counter selling wax to moms for their kids that were going out of the grommet spot and I was like if this is my life a week ago I was in Brazil signing autographs and now I'm like humbling take, humility. it was so humbling yeah and I remember thinking like if this is life after pro surfing I'm I don't even know if I want this like I was I was like depressed. so depressed yeah. and then I'm always grateful to Andrew Kidman because he was the editor of Waves at that time and we, we were friends and he was always curious about things and I think I had more of this than I realized but he when I first met Andrew Kidman it was on my very first trip to Australia and he was writing a profile of Dave Permanent who's one of the most interesting surfers of the period in, yeah. in, my, in my opinion and so Andrew in many ways it was sort of like all my all my like a fan, fanning out as we call it now like all my kind of obsession with like the great athletes of the sport of yeah. the great surfers I was almost denying that because I was trying to tell myself I was a great surfer myself and trying to beat them as soon as I like took off the hat of being a pro athlete I got to fan out again and like be totally fascinated by these people and write about them and 
write profiles and it was suddenly like, okay, you know what? I'm actually better not trying to like stand up and fight them, metaphorically speaking, right. but more like try to get in their head. Like I was more interested in the psychology of them than I was trying to, it was really, it was a real release to not be trying to yeah. win. Yeah. What a trip because you're like 180ing out of a, um, a mindset of that, right? Yes. You're like, well, I have to take a different role yeah. in this surf world. Yes. And, you know, working in a shop, there's nothing wrong with that. But from where, from your, the, yeah. the heights. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, like, yeah, that's not a really experience. Right. When you but, put a jersey on in those cities and people are down there to watch, they, they, you know, of course they're going to know Tom Kern and Tom Carroll and stuff. And then when you get down to the lower, you, you're there, you're a foreigner, you're still part of the freaking party. Uh, you, like, you, big time, you, you know? know? exactly. Uh, no, it's funny. And, I, you and, just explained it beautifully. That's so true. And, you know, it's like, you know, when you get off, and I love hearing past pros or people making that 180 transition because it's like, you know, you got a livelihood, yeah. you know? You got to worry about, you got to figure out how to get back to these places that you so desperately had so much fun and, and want to go back to. Yeah. And then three, like, you know, like that ego or yeah. whatever humbling experience like how do you you know bounce back like that's just like you got all these different things yeah. pulling at you yeah for sure no it's so true because i think what you said is so true is that um we're all just the traveling pro surfers in town and um they the lower tier guys it's we're as athletes we're like obsessed with our number my feeling was like oh god i'm like 40th in the world i'm nothing i'm like the lowest ranked guy yeah but we're still the traveling pros, and so they're all, we're all... Which is such them. an elite little group, yeah. you know, to begin yeah. with, so it's like... Yeah, but we're receiving this adulation that, like, makes us think we're really important, but, you know, yeah. then all of a sudden you're not, you know. Yeah. Is it, is it true you came back from Australia and you pull your Australian accent at home? Pro I probably did. Yeah, I, I probably. Heard, I heard you. You might maybe here and there sling, sling some some Aussie I language mean, in I front probably, of girls. No, I probably would have. I probably would have because much of my Australian thing was like a reinvention of myself. It was it was this thing where I think I got to just like run away from my past. Yeah. Um, in a really good way. So, um, I probably would have been doing something like that. <laughs> hey, you got a hot chick in front of you. You know. Yeah. You know you what? You've been on the flip that. side going. Over to another country, especially Australia, where they speak English, and be like, "Oh, your your accent's so beautiful." Yes, you know, like you're. It's just that sex appeal yes. language yep. works both ways. Yeah. Um, hey, <laughs> you were again. so lucky that Andrew Kidman. Yeah. Was the editor yeah. or yes. whatever he was, and. Hi, he hired you on the spot. I know. I was really lucky. Yeah. Yeah. We he took a, a lot of risk on a, on a on a few people because Jesse Fain, like he, yes, he was exactly. like, yeah. We'd sleep on Jesse's floor, and you know, same thing. He's like our age. He ripped, and you're like, what are you doing working at a magazine? He's like, you know, I don't know. Got the opportunity. Yeah. You know? and yeah. It was. It's you know people you know find their own paths and stuff in different yeah. times, but so yeah, it's cool that you guys had that opportunity at such a young age to. You so you, you, he hires you. Associate editor. Yep. Um, was the pay like meager? <laughs> Nothing at all. Um, but I was used to living hand to mouth at that time and just kind of cobbling together a living. And then I way also, more than the surf shop. It was way more than the surf shop. And then, but then I also got a job. Derek, it didn't last long. It la I was real disappointed. I worked for Rip Curl for a short period, and my rep, job is marketing, marketing, and I was running the team. Mm. And to be truthful. 
my ego was too big to be managing all these guys because I had been them. I was them three months ago. It yeah. was so I was so new, and I remember for the Australian for the Australian group, <laughs> and it was when the search started, which the search part of it was great. And I was working with Derek Hine. Derek got me the job, and I was going down to Torquay meeting with Claw and Brian Singer and the whole team there, and it was a really fun bunch. And I loved Rip Curl and I loved the wetsuits. Um, but my job was mainly to uh, take the all the surfers were right in their orders for wetsuits, and then my job was to like enforce this new way where the stickers were supposed to sit on the board, and it was the search, and it was like the logo was supposed to sit uh, eight yeah. inches down from the nose. There was the search logo, no no logos ahead of it, and my job was to police this with the guys, cool. and it was just this thing where I was like, oh, come on, I like I this I'm the wrong guy for this, and <laughs> but there were some fun guys. I mean. Uh, the Aberton brothers from Maruber were part of the team yeah. then. Um, Chris Davidson, who sadly passed away recently, he was, yeah. I loved Davo, like he, he was, was a 15 year old yeah. kid yeah. from Narrabeen, I loved him. We went on a trip together. So Frank there was. He's South African, but yeah, he yeah, was, Frankie was, was part of it. Frankie was part of it. We did a Poncho, a, remember Poncho? Like yeah, Poncho. We, were like, we, we talked to him, we were like, wait, you're Hawaiian, but you kind of fell under the Australian umbrella? Yes. No, we had a really fun time, and I think, I still think. Uh, Derek Hines' idea with the search was so perfectly oh, timed. Oh my gosh. I mean, it was like, it was almost like surfing was questioning what its purpose was, and yeah. Derek almost went, okay, it's, let's go back to like the endless summer. It's this idea where like, it's not about competition, it's not, you know, it, you, can ex, you can explore yourself, you can yeah. explore geographically and find the remote perfect wave, and that's the, the pursuit of the perfect wave, the search for the perfect wave. Yeah. And it's also an inner inner thing. And Tom Curran did it with the board design and all that. Yeah. So that was your first job. At, that that and waves, and they coupled together perfectly because the first the first travel piece that I wrote about and that I went on as not a pro surfer but as a journalist was to Western Australia, and Tom Curran was cutting his first record. Um, so he had all these Perth musicians, and there was this natural amphitheater near Margaret River. Yeah. And Curran, it was this amazing, I, I can still see it, like it was just this cave, basically. Yeah. Sandstone cave. Exactly. Yeah. And they put down. It's on video. I've seen yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sonny Miller was there. Um, Derek was there. We had such a fun trip. Um, Frankie Olposer was there. Chris Davidson was there. And it was like Tom Curran was recording by night. Everyone was hanging out, drinking wine. Tom was making like really nice music. And then we wake up the next morning. We surfed the box. We surfed uh, left-handers, and um, and I was kind of half working for Rip Curl and telling young Chris Davidson to put the stickers on his board before he goes out in the water, so that the Rip Curl guys were happy. And then I was partly making notes because I was writing a piece for both Surfer magazine and Waves. Oh, you're magazine. double dipping. Double your dipping. So yes. Both 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 uh, U.S. mags and Australian mags. Yes. Yeah. I was just Sick. trying to like hustle, hustle. Yeah. as best I could. And I got it. And I was still surfing good enough to where I was like in some of the videos that they made at that period. Yeah. So I was kind of really happy. And I had a brand new board from Wayne Lynch that I got that was just great. Can I ask you the feeling of having your professional surf photography photo on the mag and then having your article with your name like written? Like, what's the comparison? I smoked so much weed at that time. <laughs> and so, in my mind, it was, I, I think I was like very uh, romantic and poetic in my mind. And I thought, okay, I've been like drawing these lines across a wave on my board. Now I'm just drawing them with my pen across the page, you know? And the writing, I didn't write very well at this time. I was I was too um, influenced by 
But that that Riders. that that ego, that sort yeah. of ego, no. my name, I, I'm that, you know, like no, I'm sure it ha- had that same kind of. Honestly, you're you're nailing it. I mean, I was used to being in the mag, and I think the thing that was so, and I say this with respect because there's nothing we all make our way in the world, and I've been yeah. humbled many times in the, since then. But going to work in a surf shop after being a pro guy who was in all those magazines, and my pictures were on the walls of surf shops, yeah. was heartbreaking. Yeah. It just felt like, man, like I've gone way backwards. And as soon as I saw my byline in the magazine, I was like, okay, here's something that has my thumbprint on it. Here's mm-hmm. something that it's a, it's a part of my self-expression. And I think that's the one thing that's so amazing about pro surfing and competitive surfing is it's like, wow, you, what I learned quickly is when I got more serious into writing, I was like, okay, I love the self-expression of writing, but I sit in a chair when I do it. I didn't realize how fortunate I was as a pro surfer to get to express myself like dance uh, in the water on a wave yeah. and built into all that was like all this great health like we were so naturally healthy we were in the right. sunshine we were, we were we were physically fit best non-workout ever yes yeah. and so so it felt like writing at that time was like this is the next best thing to being a pro surfer like I get to express myself the words feel like mine um, and I and it was very ego driven, quite honestly. It was just like I, I want people to know I'm here. I yeah. want I, and when some when I first started doing it, and, and someone was like, "Oh, I read your story, and that was a really funny thing you said about such." such I was stoked. It was like someone going, "Oh, I saw you throw you, a tail." Yeah, 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 that's what I that's what I was trying to get like out of you. I'm like, dude, this is like you you know because now you're on this new high of writing yeah. you know yeah. writing high. Like you're ripping. It's yes. a different satisfaction. Yes. Right. Like yes. Almost better. with, less, with less, yeah. less pressure and more fun, and yeah. you know. Well, the other thing that I realized, and this is this was something that I realized how like narrow my focus was, is only after I stopped being a pro surfer did I realize. I mean, I think the thing about being a pro, and you, I'm sure you can relate to this, is like you're not. I remember my my dad saying like, make sure you're cultivating your mind, and you and and almost that thing, the cliche of like, have a plan B or have a yeah. have a. And it's like, you can't really have a plan B. You kind of have to invest everything. Because if you have a plan B, you're not... You're half in, half out. You're half in, you're half out. It's like saying... It's like... It's putting doubt in your mind already if you have a plan B. Exactly. It's like being in a relationship going, I'm going to keep one on the side just in case this relationship falls apart. Like, your marriage is not going to go well if you do that, you know? And so, I think, like, I... When I was a pro surfer, I was all in. That's all I thought about. And then once I stepped out and I really like started reading a lot and reading interviews with writers, I realized the thing that I really clung to was like, if you're a writer, there's no short sh- shelf life. Mm. Whereas when you're a pro athlete, you, by the time you're over 25, you're already on the back end of For it. Sure, back and then, yeah. And you're like, okay, you know, by the time I'm 30, it's probably going to be over. And once I started writing, I was like, okay, I've got so much time to, to develop this yeah. because I can be you know, an old fat guy sitting in a chair, but if my mind is working well, I can still write stuff. Well, we, you know, yeah, you, 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 the backup plan is kind of never really there as far, you know, like you don't focus, you don't focus on it, but you, 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 you visualize yourself in the future. Like, Hey, I'm kind of into that. And I could probably fall back on this, but until you get kind of like thrown in, Hey, got cut. Yeah, you know it, the timing isn't on your timeline. It's yeah. stuff just happens. Life yes. just happens. So yeah, you got to cross that bridge and kind of figure things out real quick. And yeah, you know, like luckily, you you know, and I and again, I love the the pro surfer or just any athlete and how they come on the other side. And yeah, you know, like this is perfect because now you're 
you're, you're still in the industry. Yep. You're still with people that you know you want to be around. You're still yep. traveling. You're still riding, and you're making a living. Yes. No. Not I'm, much. At, you know, not much. But you're used to that. Yeah. So the rip curl team management didn't last too long. No, and I remember at one what I found was that I was I was overseeing the team and taking all their wetsuit orders, and it was sort of like. The lower tier guys, the less significant guys, were the most high maintenance. <laughs> they needed the most attention. They would order a wetsuit, and I would write it all down and put in the order and send it down to Torquay, and they, the wetsuit would be getting made. And then they'd call the next day, and they'd go, remember how I said I wanted red sleeves? I kind of want blue sleeves. And it was like this thing of like, oh, man, I this is humiliating me yeah. in a way where I'm... I'm afraid I surf that, better than you, and you're barking orders at me. That, that, that was that, it. My yeah. ego was too big, and and I, I I it's I take full responsibility. And I remember I lasted a couple months, and I remember talking to Claw, who was so cool, and I just said, I just don't think this is the job for me. Yeah. And that was good because it gave me all this impetus to really start writing more. And I ended up spending a year living in Sydney, and then at that time, this was 1991, 92. Surf media started blowing up. Volcom was new. Yeah. Surf skate snow all hung together. Transworld Publication, which did Transworld skateboarding and snowboarding, did Warp Magazine, which was surf skate snow music. Yeah. Um, there had been a magazine that Surfer published called Beach Culture that was fantastic. That was a lot of peripheral things around beach stuff. And I was, and then the Surfer's Journal was brand new. Yeah. And industry was blowing up, and yeah. people had money to spend. And yes. People were like, dude, if these magazines are successful. Let's make a, you know, just layers it's a on trip layers because like. Yeah. Volcom came out ninety one, right? Yeah, yeah. Like and we kinda came out of a recession or was a recession. Yes, yeah. But surfing at that time and, and action sports at that time was starting to really like blossom. Yes. And Kelly, you know, was coming on the scene, the black and white thing. Yeah. I mean that all those things were happening and more and more I guess attention to our culture, our industry. It was kind of the second birth of the industry when, in respect of like when Billabong and you know Quicksilver and mm -hmm. you know all those four, you know Hank well, and Op, like all those heritage brands were still killing it. But then the, the younger surfers were kind of the the new group, and all the '90s brands that popped up. There's yeah, a, there's it's a, a ton of them. It's a yeah. trip. Like my observation gotcha. is, you know we as an industry always want to be mainstream mm -hmm. so we can profit, right? Yeah. yeah. And and Endless Summer, Beach Blanket Bingo, you know, Gidget, all those things help mainstream it all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then for whatever reason, you know, Hollywood stopped paying attention. Yeah. And then like what you're talking about right that specific time, 91, 90, 92, Kelly, yeah, Baywatch, yes, like, you know, even yeah. Ellis Summer too, maybe. Yeah, I was right around that. Pretty Adam close. Hall, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. So like that, what you said, the rebirth of the industry, like yeah. that's what that was was happening for sure. More I, magazines on, on, on that media. level, but also the level of like people starting brands, yeah. the VHS and the you know the video, yes, video recorder and the Taylor Steele and the whole movie, you know. So there was. So much going on. Yeah, no, that know? was an exciting time. Yeah, and it was really interesting. There was it was an exciting time in print media because, and I was starting to pay attention to that because there were just a lot of new magazines popping up. David Carson, who'd come from, he was the art director, graphic designer of Transworld Skate, I believe, first. Then he came on at Surfer, and he gave Surfer that really new look. And that yeah. was right when Mavericks came on the scene, and and the surf mags looked really different. 
Um, and then David Carson started a magazine called Reagan, which was a music magazine based in LA. And I moved, so I was like, I, I did, I was living in Sydney. I was really excited to be new to journalism. I couldn't get enough of it. I was meeting writers. I was meeting people that I never really hung out with because I was just a surfer. And I was like, okay, there's a whole world out there that I've like been not allowing myself to dive into, but now I am. And I came back to LA to visit my family. And I was, my brother was living in Venice. So I was in Venice. And there was just this thriving culture. There was like a coffee house culture, which is so strange to say, to even think of that. Like you think of that in, in Paris or something. Yeah, but yeah. there was this like coffee house culture where there were poetry readings and there was like, you know, open mic nights and people like playing music. Totally, totally remember that era. Yeah. A, a couple of our friends opened up Natali. Remember Natali Coffee? Yeah. And they would do like comedy night. Like, yeah. You know, open mic musicians like yeah it was, was it was very diy i think yeah. like the seattle grunge scene influenced it as well and it was this sort of thing like you could go into your garage and you can make anything you want and it's possible and i think uh that was a really fun thing so as a as like a new to writing new to journalism i saw that and i went i want to be back in la i want to live in venice beach and i want to be this bohemian guy that i that uh, i'm going to be someone that i wasn't able to be when i was a pro surfer i was such a jock i was a little jock when yeah. i was a, at Pro Surfer, and I started hanging out with more artists and musicians and um, writers, and I just found a new community and and started working with Surfing Magazine, worked with Warp Magazine. Um, I know that was a thriving, fun time. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you know, surfing, like you know, when we we're talking about earlier, like the '60s, '70s, all you know, just black and mellow and style and groovy and then you know that competitive in early 80s all the way to the you know 90s was just like that pinnacle like the jock the athlete you know yeah corporate you know this and then the 90s kind of kind of was a melting pot of you know going back the search for you know rebirth and then like the the, the free surfer was you know now you know getting Coming more up. coverage yeah. and the guys in the you know winning contests and you know there well, was this, another the, the surf contest thing was getting bigger and bigger, but the jock surfer, but yeah, there's, yeah. there's a, and because there's so much attention on and money the culture and, and industry, more, more personalities yeah. were, were getting put into the mix. Yeah. yeah. We talk about the subcultures of, of, of surfing. Each, so, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and now that you have all these different like subcultures that are all, you know, getting yeah, to the current, Yeah. Fuck man. Like, you know, the search yep. made him a free surfer. Yeah. Like he was the epitome of pro surfing. Yep. Amateur, pro, and then the search like gave him that like holy crap. He's like he could have gone two, three, four more titles easily <laughs> within that with you know that the you know what was the last yeah. one? 87, 88, and then he he took a couple years off, came back. Yeah. Not 90. 90. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And yeah. and that was like I think the most wins on a on a tour for the Champ, I think he won like seven or eight events. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, but it was interesting because I think um, I think what I was what I was going through in my little world, um, Tom was having a version of that with the search, which was like he was unshackled from competition mm -hmm. and he didn't have to try to surf to the judges' criterion. He didn't have to drop ride the stock thruster designs. Yeah, and he started playing. He had the, the Tommy boards. Peterson fish that he was riding in big. Indonesian waves. And yeah. sun, I said, dude, I, yeah, sunset. He's paddling out on five two like fish. Yeah, and it's yeah, like yeah. freaking. What are you doing, dude? But you know, I think in some ways he was. Um, it was almost a thing of. It's so ironic of it. Anyways, our meters ran up. Uh, we, we're gonna wrap this up in a few minutes.
um, and do a take two. Sure. No, be I love awesome. it. Yeah. I think this is fun. Yeah, because I think we're just scratching the surface. I think we're in the 90s, and yeah. you know, I think we got a lot more to digest and, and talk about because you're We need to take our time with your story. Like, there's prolific, iconic, I'm not going to say you're iconic, but you're a prolific personality Thanks. in surf culture. For sure. You've and seen and heard and documented on your own, you know. Yeah. Have cr- contributed so much and you well, still thank you. are. Thank you. You know, which is amazing. Yeah, because I mean, what are, you know, the guests we've had on, whether you're, you know, you're starting a company to a professional athlete, to a photographer, videographer, to a writer. I mean, everybody's perspective is is really great to, to hear. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, well, the period I think that we're just getting into, which would be the early 90s, 92, 93. Yeah. I remember, um, so I moved back here. I was living in Venice. I was kind of trying to get away from surfing, or not not get away, but expand myself beyond. So I hung out with a lot of musicians who weren't real serious about surfing, but I was still writing for all the surf mags. And I, I was the surfing editor for Warp Magazine, which was Surf Skates, No Music. And I distinctly remember going to the trade shows at that time in between Long Beach and San Diego. Yeah. And there were so many new brands. And there was this really like, there was almost this DIY spirit. Yeah. And, and especially in skateboarding, this was like the period of um, Steve Rocco and uh, World Industries. Yeah. It was Big Brother Magazine, which was really cool. And I was really paying attention to magazines. I loved yeah. magazines at the time. There was the coffee house culture thing. There was like, the local coffee places in Venice, there would be like little, you know, chapbook poetry things left on the, for free that you could take with your cup of coffee and read someone's poetry. But it was just like people were making a lot of things. But what's interesting is I remember that was the time that you were on the scene and or you came on the scene yeah. and turned pro. And there was. Um, Are you making this up, dude? That you noticed Jay? No, of course, Larson? of course, of course. He saw my, a lot of my photos come across his. No, I paid close attention to this stuff, but. But it was the momentum generation. I think we, yeah. we think of it as the momentum generation, and I think what was really what I how I remember it, because in many ways your momentum generation was my walking papers for my pro t- career, <laughs> and there was almost a way in which we like stomped our tails and came off the top, and you were part of the generation where the reverse came in, and there was yeah. there was there was like a more nimble quality of coming up to the top and spinning your tail and really yeah. flowing with it and it I remember that was almost like a thing where there was a there was a it was almost like a language that you spoke or something and my generation if didn't know how to do it it's almost I'm sure there's a parallel there monkey see monkey do and as soon as you saw you know which again the video aspect of it wasn't like that one you know yearly video was more traditional and more you know kind of a, a travel kind of documentary or something you know like these the videos and we would see and you know again like you mentioned where you're surfing you know amateur contests or you're seeing the pros come through we had the bud tour that was this in full swing yeah and uh there was no shortage of like seeing people just going berserk all the time you know so i I think for my point of view it was just like as soon as you saw somebody do something radical you you just knew that that was your mission yeah to to nail that move or you know turn and, and Better it. I remember that period so distinctly, and I was I was sponsored by Quicksilver. Well, this was just before Willie Morris was the sales rep, and we did this promo trip up the coast, and there were like different people that went on it, and I went on one to Santa Barbara with Wayne Lynch, which was super cool. He was wow. like one of the legends, but Willie had just been on one, maybe further up the coast, and Shane Bashan was on it. I remember Willie going, Shane does this thing where like 
it comes up either backside or frontside, and he throws the tail, and he just slides into a 360. You know, I never even knew what, that wasn't a maneuver of our yeah, generation. Yeah. And it was, it was complete opposite I don't of the traditional think we've ever thought or talked with I, anybody that, you know what I mean? Yeah. That has that, like, oh, shit, you know, the new generation. Yeah. So the, the yeah. next generation. Yes. We talk about milestones, and this is anybody that surfs has these, you know, milestones, you know, like first, you know, trim in the, in the green, you know, blue face of the wave, out of the white water, you know, first cutback, top turn or whatever, first barrel, first duck dive, like all that. I remember distinctly Southside shore break. I did my first reverse. Wow, you know, so cool. and I and I did. I've done one. And I did it my whole life. I don't think I've ever done one. And it was on accident. Yeah, and I did it <laughs> on, a, on a board. I hated, yeah. uh-huh. but it, it, for whatever reason, it worked. Right. And uh, and I did it in front of D Baugh, Jeff Deffenbaugh, and, and I, I think he was like, "What'd you pull that?" Because he was duck diving. I'm all, "Yeah," <laughs> and I was just like, "Yes." You know, so but, cool. but that was just because you saw other guys doing it, and it was like okay, every session, every section that came, you're yeah. like, you're you weren't stopping until you got one down. Yeah, yeah that was an amazing period for, yeah. for high performance surfing, and I think um, Taylor Steele clearly like was very instrumental because he was making, he was so prolific, popping out all those films, yeah. and there was such a lo- large cast of characters. Um, uh, Justin, what was the kid from? Um, Poston. Yes, Poston. he was so good. Dude, I mean, there were so many great styles. Yeah. yeah, so much good surfing at that time. I, and I was, it's funny because I was, I'd stepped away, and I was just in awe. I was, I was getting so inspired by. Uh, somehow, I think like be, being a journalist and a writer just made me be curious about it. If I wasn't doing that and I was still working at the surf shop, yeah. I might have been bitter and angry that I couldn't do it, and I would have been like, "Yeah, those punks like." ended my career but I was really excited watching it because I was a surf fan yeah really. yeah and I, and I think it comes back to to the, the the progression of boards and shapes at that same time too for sure you know I, I remember and I have some earlier boards in there like the the realm like I was 12 13 trying to turn that thing like how, how do I, yeah and then it came down to that nice you know, pinched rail dome, just soften, you know, and, and a lot of, a lot, lot of, lot of current. Yeah. Yeah. A lot exactly. of curve, a lot of like the, the Kelly Slater, but, but Shane Beshin, freaking six, two, 18 and a quarter, two and an eighth. Yeah. Yeah. That was the, the, yes. But it mentions, but it gave crazy. us the, the opportunity to, to kind of muscle the board around a little, you know, yes. a little easier. And right. that kind of helped us, you know, do some of the tricks. No, it's so interesting. Cause I think it paralleled skateboarding because a lot of the skate wheels were the, the street skating was the, it was almost like get the board out of the way as yeah. much as possible. Make yeah. it as small of an obstacle as you can so that we could just do what our imaginations want to do. Yeah. Um, I remember it was a few years later, but uh, there was that girl skateboards video called Yeah Right. And yeah. I think Spike Jones did it. And he did the green screen thing where there was no skateboard and you just saw the person doing all the tricks, but there was nothing under their feet. And I remember thinking that's perfect for what was going on because it was almost like make that thing as l- uncumbersome as it could possibly be. Make it be like as little of an object as possible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So going back to Warp Magazine. Um, and and you were trying to take yourself out of the surf journalism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And working with writing stories for yes. bands and yes, I was writing for uh, the Raygun Publishing did a bikini magazine. I was writing pieces for them, and I was really just trying. I was just I was curious and I was very naive, but I just wanted things other than surfing. I was still stoked on surfing, and I was proud to be a surfer. But I think I just felt like I wanted to learn as much as I could. Yeah. 
yeah, you got to you got to kind of get out of your comfort zone and, and yeah. start writing about other things to probably yeah. kind of. And I think because you are a worldly person, right? You've got to travel the world and yeah. experience so many other cultures and you know experiences. And your dad instilled that in you. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, how boring would it be to talk about surfing all the fucking time? Yeah, that's it. You know? <laughs> that was it. No, and I say yeah. that. I say no this, matter how much you love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, here's the thing. I say this respectfully, but like, I remember getting assignments to write about the hot, young, 19-year-old kid. And I would go, you know, drive to wherever they were, and I would like spend an afternoon eating with going to dinner and with my notepad and my tape recorder recording everything and then driving home and like hanging on their every word and realizing they're really not saying anything that interesting. And I say this, I'm not disrespecting, but when your job is to surf as best as you can and you're in the middle of your career, it's the, your, your job is not to articulate it. It's to do it. And I realized like the surf mags are primary with the exception of the surfers journal who I started writing for a lot more at that time. They're focused on these high performance surfers who have the least amount to say, and rightly so, because yeah. they're they're still in their careers. The Surfer's Journal was interesting yeah. to me because it was a lot of older dudes who, who had more perspective, and they were maybe past their surfing prime, yeah. but they'd lived lives, and they they would they learned the storytelling. They learned they were they were interesting to talk to because they had perspective and life experience. Yeah, and um, so that so that was I had this realization like I, I I'm like I'm working for peanuts and I'm learning nothing from these people and I get to hang out with surfers and I get to go surfing and I'll drive down and spend an afternoon with someone in San Diego and get a surfing at Blacks that evening before I drive home so that's kind of cool but when it's when I'm sitting at my desk and listening to the interview like I want to learn something new I don't want to just regurgitate what I've done my entire life yeah and these guys that I'm writing about are just a they're like the new version of what I was at that time and I want to move into new things and I yeah. want to interview someone older than me that's going to share something new and I'm going to be like, oh, I never thought about that, you know. Yeah. And that's the, probably the hard, you know, you know, balance of business where you got to have those top athletes and you got to have stories about them, but it's yes. just not, you know, to sell the mag. Hey, yeah. ha- sponsors are happy. We got the article on the X, Y, and Z athletes and, the, you know, the formula is kind of set for you. Yeah. But yeah, you don't, you know, you're not getting much out of it. Yes. So, so who did you start interviewing? Like what kind of bands and artists and... I did one, a memorable trip from that period is um, I convinced Bikini Magazine to uh, get me to um, the Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam at the time. This was pre... Pre, um, oh, you need an assistant? <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> the so, Cannabis Cup. The Cannabis Cup, which was like a competition of marijuana in Amsterdam. And you go from coffee shop to coffee shop ex- trying all the pot. And then there was like a convention center where all the... all It was like this weed business before what it is now. And wow. back then, it was totally illegal in this country, but it was legal so the, in we're Amsterdam. talking 90s? It would have been 93, 94, 95. Jeez. So there was that. I was friends with... Uh, Sandow Burke, who was a painter, a visual artist who lived in, at the time, he lived in Hollywood. I spent a lot of time with him. He was friends with a guy named Gomez Bueno, who did a lot of Thrasher magazine stuff. And we would go to San Francisco and we would visit Kevin Ansel, who does a lot of stuff with Ruka. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely, lovely guy. Kevin was doing all the skateboard graphics. And then Barry McGee, who at the time was Twist. Yeah. I think that's a Barry McGee right behind yeah. us. Yeah. Um, lived in San Francisco. And uh, he and his partner, Margaret Kilgallen, were making art. And I was really interested in that art world. So those, I was trying to, like, bring in, I was trying to find a thread of surfing Mm -hmm. to the surf magazines, but 
hang out with people that were just from a different background than I was. That's cool. Yeah. That's yeah. so amazing. I mean, and, and, and look where it is. Like, all those names you just brought up yeah. are infused in our industry yeah. and, and a lot of others, you know? Yeah. Like, when, you, when you're that talented on, on a, you know artistic way, I mean, there's, there's a lot of platforms to, to yeah. showcase your work. Yeah. Like Dancil. I mean... How, how do you write about cannabis... I, well, it was, you know what, it's funny. Um, it was, uh, uh, was kind of like that. This one is super cruisy. <laughs> no, it was so bad. I remember um, being at the thing and there were these, like, there were these talks. And, you know, at noon, the guy who was part of the commune was going to give his talk. And I remember two things happened. One, someone was giving a speech in, like, an aud- a small auditorium full of people. And in the middle of his stone speech, he just forgot what he was saying. It was like, <laughs> it was like, it was like a bad, it was like Spicoli stuff. Total Spicoli. And then, and then another one was in the middle of someone's speech, suddenly there was, like, a medical emergency because someone had, like, passed out from smoking too much pot. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, I went to write about the cannabis cup because at the time I was kind of a stoner. Not a connoisseur stoner, but I smoked a lot of weed. And I was just, it was, it was a fun countercultural thing to be a part of. Yeah. And I thought, like, this is almost making me want to stop pot smoking because I don't want to be a part of this community and I don't want to look like these people. Yeah. You know, it's too ex- hardcore. Yeah. There's an expression a friend told me, and it's um, never buy drugs from anyone you wouldn't want to look like. <laughs> and I, it was kind of like that, that, that was the scene at this yeah. thing. It was like, I don't want to be one of these people, you know. I've always been Bunch told. Bunch of lizards. Yeah. Yes. Always yeah. been told, like, we, you know, it's a, it's a cookie, not a meal, you know, like uh-huh. a little freaking, just yeah. a little snippet. You don't need to freaking indulge in a three course. Like, it's not going to it's not going to be good for you. Just yeah. a little, little snack. Yeah. But this was the time of the warp Tour. And I wrote about warp tours, so I was writing about the bands at that time. So those were fun things. I mean, there was just there were just a lot of. I mean, honestly, and it's still this way. Like a lot of the allure of journalism is just like an excuse to go do something fun and write about it. Yeah. The writer Paul Theroux, who's one of my heroes, and I used to read a lot of his books when I was on the tour, and he's now a friend. He wrote something to the effect of, um, uh, a, a, a writing is an education in the eyes of the public. In other words, like you get to go educate yourself and do all the things and learn new things and you write about them and they go out to people, but it just, the, the writing sort of justifies the going out and seeing it. And I was definitely at that time, it was just like, it was all so exciting, you know? Yeah. You almost got like that backstage pass too. Like, totally. You know, you got the, you, you know, not like a media like kit, but like you, you know, you're, get to do this you get yeah, to go hang yeah. out in the back and you know really get to know people and yeah no, behind the scenes for sure it was an excuse to get to talk to a lot of people and I think somehow when you come at them as a journalist like we're doing right now it's like you get to cut right to the chase of asking interesting questions you don't make small talk you're like so when did you first pick up a guitar you yeah. know and and then and then it suddenly becomes like a thing where you start where you're talking about one of their passions and they kind of the barrier breaks down and they're kind yeah. of just like oh yeah, yeah like dude it's like us getting on your first surfboard. You yeah. know, like, oh, that brings back memories. And yeah, I remember this guitar. I like that. And, you know. But you have to have yeah. some kind of tact and talent of, yeah. you know. Oh, for sure. Getting it. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Getting people at ease. and you know. No, but you learn it. And I'm sure you guys, same with doing what you do, like doing this right now. Like there's just a way of uh, making someone feel comfortable. And then they're, and then they're like almost oversharing, you yeah. know, that you just, and I remember when I was first doing a lot of. Um, journalism and doing interviews and profiles and when when someone would say to me god I've never told anyone this before I would always be like in my mind I'd be like I'm doing a good job like, yeah, they yeah. feel comfortable they're yeah. they're opening up to me you know yeah and, and I mean that's a that's a good way to end right, right there <laughs> yeah. opening up yeah. yeah 
Yes. Um, so, for those of you out in the audience that's going to listen to this, this is episode one with Jamie Brissick. We're going to continue this. It's probably going to be more than two or three episodes. Well, this guy's going to really milk you, bro. Yeah. But um, now I wanted to uh, thank again. Mercado. Mercado. Yeah. Here in Newport Beach. You guys got to check it out. It's funny when... When you were talking about Larry Bertelman, Larry Bertelman's board is right above us. And also like the 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 change of the changing of the guards from from the Soul Surfer, which there's a a weird hippie board. I don't even know who made yeah. that, but there's like a trough probably. A crazy airbrush. And then the Sean Stussy next to it. And then maybe even Quark's board with the polka dot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that could be Quack's board right there. Yeah. But yeah, you guys who out there in in the in the late night with Chalky World, you got to come check out. Yep. And if you're in Colorado. Southern California or North Shore Hawaii, check out Bonsai Bowls. Got to do our sponsor plugs. Yeah, this Shane's, is for you, Jamie. Thank you, Shane Sunscreen. Thanks, Strider. There's one in Huntington. Okay. Yeah. And then there's one actually in Newport. Oh, I so appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. And our buddy Strider. I, know, I yeah. love it. I love it. You, you use shade? Yes. Hell yeah, you yes. do. Yes. You're good stuff. <laughs> Ashlyn uh, Hard Seltzers. We've got Shoots Beers. He's taking a break from drinking. He's, uh, I guess he's we'll just have months. to finish. I'm good for you. No, no. We'll, <laughs> we're going to give him uh, some Shoots Beer and some Ashlyn's. But um, one gift uh, that... It's kind of a special gift because uh, the, the late night chalky stickers. Yeah, those that <laughs> sticker. <it. laughs> Thank but, you. But uh, I, I work with a brand called Ola Canvas, and I was meeting with the guys yesterday, and I told them that we were interviewing the great Jamie Brissick, and they're like, "Holy shit, you're going to interview Brissick?" And I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "Will you give him one of our jackets?" And I'm like, "Gladly." So. Thank you so for much. Eric and Andrew. That's just to get you back again. All right. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. Hey, there's some killer pants that go with that, too. This yeah. is beautiful. So the next time you <laughs> I'll come back, we'll I'll come back for the pants. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> thank well, you. Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for your time. And yeah, um, yeah we'll, we'll see you soon. Yeah, thank yeah. you guys. Yeah. That was really fun. Cool. Awesome. Thank cool. you. Peace. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Bonsai Bulls. Hands down, the best bulls, period. Seven locations. Two in Hawaii. Five in Southern California, bonsai bowls. Go get some. Caliente Southwest Grill. Clean, healthy Mexican food. Everything is made fresh daily using produce from local farms. Their salsa, their dressing, and even their marinades are made from fresh produce in-house, so almost all of the menu is naturally gluten-free and extremely clean. Family-owned, showing local love for 22 years. Check out their website, calientesouthwest.com, for all your party pack and catering needs. You could also call them at 949-515-0909, calientesouthwest.com. Ashland Hard Seltzer, made from all natural ingredients. No sugar, zero carbs, gluten-free. Great taste and guilt-free good times. Ashland Hard Seltzer. Shade Sunscreen. The best sunscreen for all surfers. Shade sunscreen. It's been around since the sun. Shade, Shade. sunscreen. <laughs> Clearweather is a family-owned footwear brand started by our friends Josh and Brandon Brubaker. They are driven to create their own path in the corporate sneaker world. Less corporate, more independent. Clearweather. Clearweatherbrand.com. Fuax 
is the best, ickiest, stickiest wax in the game. Foo Wax. Late Night with Chalky is supported by Inherent Bummer. Surf entertainment, thoughtful writing, surf videos, music, and fresh hell for the core surf community. Remember, it's not the end of the world. Subscribe and check it all out at InherentBummer.com. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please give us a five-star rating and spread the word. Special thanks to our good friends, James Williams, for our awesome artwork, and Justin Reynolds for the amazing music.